This is Audible. Recorded Books and RB Digital present The Original by Brandon Sanderson and Mary Robinette Cole. Narrated by Julia Whalen. This was day one of my life, and I didn't even know it. <sighs> I'm such an idiot. It's like this I woke up disoriented. The way you are when you rearrange your room or sleep in a hotel and the light is coming from the wrong direction, you know? I thought that was all it was at first, that I was on a trip and was just groggy. And then I noticed the smell. Hospitals have a specific smell and no nanite-driven theme in the world can completely mask it. A woman leaned over me, smiling, with the stethoscope badge that all doctors seem to wear. She had plump brown cheeks that dimpled when she spoke. And how are we today, Holly? I shifted, and I remember this very clearly, the plastic tubing of an IV brushed against my arm. I was in a hospital bed, under a thin white sheet, wearing a thin white gown in a thin white room. And I had no idea why. Nothing hurt, so there were no clues there. Or maybe the lack of pain was a clue. I racked my brain, trying to figure out what had happened and why I was there. I'm confused. I turned my head, expecting to see Jonathan or my dad's or someone I knew. But I didn't know either of the other people in the room. One was a white man in a black suit with gray hair smoothed back into a bun at the base of his neck. He looked at me as if he were measuring me for a coffin. The other man stood just to the side of the door, holding a blue folder loosely at his side. He had a nose that looked sharp enough to cut glass and a chin to match. Well, that's to be expected. The doctor slid her hand through the air as if she were placing a virtual object. It was a little rude that she was keeping her theme settings on private, but I supposed that it was something about the confidentiality of patients. Now then... I'm Dr. Hall, and I'm sure you have a ton of questions, but things will go faster if you can just hold them for a moment, all right, hmm? All right. Now then, what's the last thing you remember before your last renewal? The last thing I could remember was being at a party with Jonathan. No, not just at the party. It was a party that I had thrown, trying to raise awareness for this new artist, a potter. They did real pottery, with clay, actual clay, not just a sim, real physical clay that they didn't theme in any way at all. You could watch them throw a pot on the wheel and see the clay spiral up organically into a form, and then, and this was the magic part, you could pick it up and sink your fingers into that clay and feel it come apart in your hands. The clay was real. And after you destroyed it, you would hand the clay back to them and they would spin something new out of it, while you, you had this crust of drying clay on your hands that absolutely proved that you had handled something real, something honest. I remembered leaning against Jonathan after lifting a vase off the wheel and smashing it back into its original form again. I remembered Jonathan's warmth as I leaned into him and drew a line of red clay down his nose. There, I said, there, I've marked you so you're real too. He frowned, but I don't remember what he said. Holly, did you hear the question? 
I blinked and looked at Dr. Hall again. Sorry, um, I was at a party with my husband. It was for Roseanne Wilson, a clay revisionist. My mouth was dry as I realized that I didn't know any of these people and that Jonathan wasn't there. If I had been hit by a skimmer or something, he should have been there when they revived me in my new body. But he wasn't. Was I in an accident? Now, now. Remember what I said about holding your questions? Of course. Picture that final memory. What do you have in your right hand? I had definitely died. This was a question that I recognized from any number of police procedural dramas on the teletree. I swallowed and resisted the urge to demand answers. But a part of me was afraid that the reason my husband wasn't there was because he didn't want to see me. Jonathan had never completely shaken his upbringing, and he had always sworn that clones were not quite like their original. And yet, here I was, alive. If I was right and I had died, my will contained instructions to have me ported into a cloned body with the memories from my last visit to a renewal center. Jonathan, on the other hand, had a do-not-replicate order on his will. I looked at my hands, which looked like my hands. The nanites had even included the odd freckle on my left thumb. I swallowed again and tried to focus. They probably wouldn't let me see him until they knew I was successfully integrated into the new body. So what was the last thing I remembered holding? N nothing. I had a martini in my left hand and some dried mud on my right. Does that count as holding something? The doctor exchanged glances with the man with the knife blade nose. What is your first childhood memory? Um, why had they looked at each other? Was I supposed to remember more? No, wait, my last memory should have been of the renewal station. Fear came and sat on my chest. What had happened to me? Childhood, um, we were, I mean, my dad and I were in a department store and I wanted to show my dad a toy, so I tugged on his skirt. Except it wasn't him. It felt like that childhood fear of being abandoned had come back to rejoin me. Good. Good. She made another note on the virtual screen that I couldn't see. Tell me how you met your husband. Where is Jonathan? Holly, now what did I say? I bit down on the inside of my cheek against an urge to punch her. I'd never had such a violent urge in my life. The adrenaline that came with it shook through my joints. We were at the Riverside Marketplace. I was buying oranges for a carving sequence I wanted to try. He was buying them for breakfast. We compared notes about real versus printed oranges, and in the course of that, I found out that he had a real job. I remembered him tossing an orange into the air and laughing. Anyway, I hadn't met anyone that had a real job before. He's a neuroengineer. That caught my attention, but he's funny and kind, and please, where is he? Is he okay? The doctor didn't answer. She just made another note and then stepped back from the bed. Bob, it's your turn, I think. The man in the suit unbuttoned his jacket as he stepped forward. Then he produced a knife with a wicked drop-point blade and rushed toward the bed. 
I threw my covers back, grabbed the IV pole, and slammed it into his side. Before he'd finished staggering back, I was out of bed, wrapping the IV line around his neck and pulling. With one foot, I kicked sideways, aiming at the weak point of his knees, and knocked him down, all while keeping the tension off the IV line in my arm. It was easy. I had never done anything like it before. My body knew what to do as if it had always done that. I dropped the IV pole and pushed back, landing on my rump on the ground. What? Bob rolled over, rubbing his neck. Nice work with the IV. Marking something on her invisible screen, Dr. Hall nodded. Excellent. It seems the edits to Holly's muscle memory and skill set have taken. I started shaking then, because the only reason they would have made edits was if I was a provisional replica. It wasn't just that I had died. No. No, I had done something. I'd done something so heinous that I'd been replaced with... me. An edited clone. No. No. What did I do? I couldn't think of anything that I would have done. Provisional replicas were murderers or rapists or abusive assholes who refused therapy, and... I carved oranges. I threw parties. I was a good person. Whatever is... I'm sure it was a mistake. What was a mistake, Holly? The doctor held her stylus over the air, ready to make another stupid note. I don't know. I pointed at the man I'd knocked down with the IV pole. But I shouldn't know how to do that, and... Am I a... What happened? Oh, for crying out loud. The third person. The man with a nose like a knife had stayed by the door, and he rolled his eyes. How many times do I have to tell you people? Skylar? The doctor held her hand out as if she could stop him. We have to be gentle, and... You need to answer her questions. Skylar opened the folder and pulled out a tri-fold pamphlet. He held it out to me. Living as a provisional replica. I'm sorry. Skylar took a step forward and met my gaze. You murdered your husband. I held a gun in my hands. I sat on the edge of the hospital bed, dressed once again in real clothes. I say real when they were white and unthemed. Simple trousers, a t-shirt, and a shoulder holster. I held a gun in my hand. It's difficult to describe how comfortable its hard ceramic weight was in my hands and how uncomfortable I was because of that. I had never held a gun before. But my hands, the hands of this altered body, knew exactly how to hold the grip, with the tang resting over the web of my firing hand so that it would be steady if I raised it and aimed. My finger rested naturally on the trigger loop, but not on the trigger. Barrel, forward sight, energy port, rear sight, power level indicator, biometric sensor, I knew these as intimately as I knew Jonathan's face. How could I have killed him? Skylar walked to stand in front of me. My government-appointed contact had shooed the other two out of the room after they'd finished testing me to make sure that whatever I was worked right. Look, I don't know what happened after your last check-in to affect your original state of mind, but the fact is that she did murder your husband. You're wrong. 
I lifted the gun, and safety instinct kept the muzzle low, pointing away from him, even though it wouldn't hurt him. Not him. They hadn't trusted me with an unrestricted energy weapon, not when programming it could make sure that it could only hurt one person. My original self. I wouldn't kill anyone. You believe you wouldn't. I get that. But she did it. She murdered Jonathan. If a random person had killed him, what would you do? At the thought of someone harming Jonathan, the visceral urge to strangle cramped my hand around the gun. If someone else had murdered him, I would kill them. What I didn't know was if that urge for violence had always been there, or if it was something that had been added. I wouldn't just turn vigilante, if that's what you're asking. I'd trust legal processes. You are the legal process. If your original had turned herself in, there'd be a whole different conversation. But that's not what happened. She killed Jonathan, and then she went off grid. How do you know that? Look, I know it's disorienting for you that weeks have passed since your last memory, but I promise you, there has been an investigation and a trial. Due process has been served. Creating you, that's the result. He drummed his fingers on his knee and stood, Tell you what, this was on the agenda for later, but I can show you the murder scene now. My spine went cold. Where? Your apartment. He swiped an invisible tablet in the air. Do you want to see it? This virtual space was made by the crime scene investigators and has all the metadata you could ask for. I clenched the gun harder, as if it were Jonathan's hand. I'm... Will he be... God, no. I mean... I have those images, but you don't want to see them. Skylar held out his hand. I'll just show you the scene. Shivering, I reached out with my free hand and took his. With that contact, I could see his theme. It morphed the appearance of the room around us, blanking out the hospital and leaving me in my kitchen, holding the hand of a government agent who thought I was a murderer. The kitchen was a quaint, open floor plan from the 2010s, with a massive granite-topped island in the middle of the room. We used old-fashioned bar stools when we ate at home. The one nearest me was tipped on its side at an angle, as if it were pointing at the pool of blood. A handprint smeared out from it. In bloody block letters, someone had written, Liar. On the floor, with blood and fibers sticking to the base, lay a small replica of Rodin's The Kiss. We'd picked that up in Paris on our first anniversary. It had a provenance that dated to the same era as our apartment, and the purchase had seemed hopelessly romantic. Hauling it home had been a chore. I remember Jonathan making a face and joking that at least the weight meant no one could doubt that it was real. Skylar reached out and tapped the air over the blood. A woman's voice began speaking. I arrived on scene at 1517 hours and was greeted by Detective Skylar Arakawa with the Cascadia Police Department Criminal Investigation Bureau. I was directed into the kitchen of apartment number 932 where the decedent was found. The room was in a state of disarray that showed signs of a struggle. In the kitchen, I noted a sculpture, a set of knives which were capped, a ceramic vase, a bowl, 12 oranges, multiple cotton swabs, and a tray of leftover sushi. One bar stool had been overturned, and the word liar was written on the floor in the victim's blood. 
A white plastic bag was noted in the trash can in the kitchen that contained orange peels, human skin, and a broken craft knife covered in blood. My hand was sweating inside Skylar's grip. I retained the broken blade and sculpture as evidence. These items were documented and inventoried and placed in the evidence room at the medical examiner's office. The body was fully supine on the floor next to the kitchen island. The head was pointing west. The feet were pointing east. The body was cool to the touch. Rigor mortis was relenting. Lividity was consistent with body position, purple in color, and fixed. Purge was noted coming from the decedent's nose. A small area on the floor under the decedent's legs was covered in what appeared to be purge. External trauma was noted at the temple consistent with the blood, hair, and brain matter on the sculpture. For a moment, the sculpture lit up, and a glowing circle illuminated what I'd thought were fibers. Hair. It was Jonathan's hair. In addition to this, the victim's face had a series of spiral carvings cut into the flesh. Based on the minimal bleeding, I believe this occurred after death. I pronounced Jonathan Gentry deceased at 1,520 hours. I jerked my hand out of Skylar's grip, and my kitchen faded away taking with it the woman's voice and the sculpture and the blood. Jonathan's blood. Tremors shook through me and kept my breath trapped in shallow gasps. Murdered. By me? I couldn't... That could not have been me. Skylar blinked and swiped his hand through the air. He looked at me and winced. This is why we usually wait. I swallowed to keep from vomiting. Carvings in his skin... Spirals, like the ones I carved in oranges. You understand what to do next? <laughs> in hindsight, laughing might not have been the best choice, but it was that or sobbing, and sometimes things are so horrifying that it twists out sideways. The pamphlet on living as a provisional replica lay wadded on the floor where I had thrown it. I have four days to find and execute myself for a crime I don't remember doing. I know. I'm sorry. Sorry? This needs a little more than sorry. Will you still be sorry next week if I fail? If this version of me dies? At least he had the grace to look uncomfortable. Please believe me that if we had been able to find your original, the judge would not have issued a warrant for your creation. Teletry dramas aside, provisional replicas are extremely, extremely rare. Well, that's comforting. Fair. All I can offer as comfort is that if you succeed, you'll take her place and can return to your normal life. Seriously? They had clearly edited me to kill, and according to them, my original had murdered, and that was the bigger issue for me. My husband is dead, there is no normal life to return to. Holly, look at me. His eyes were serious on either side of his narrow nose. Remember that a family member can petition to have a loved one revived. I swallowed. Jonathan had a DNR on his account. Surely he didn't intend that restriction to include murder. But Jonathan's parents were Southern Baptist and believed in the sanctity of the body. 
They'd use nanites to stay healthy, sure, but once someone died, once their soul had left their body, they viewed reviving as pulling a soul out of heaven at best and a walking, soulless abomination at worst. Oh, sure, they believed in the resurrection of the body, but only with the second coming. They would never revive him. I'd thought it so much religious nonsense, but now... I looked at the gun in my hand and felt the familiar weight of it. Whose experience had they edited into me? You're asking me to actually kill. That's not something I would do. But you did. Skylar shrugged. Just make sure you check in every day. Yes, sir. I'll be sure to keep you updated on my progress. Do you want your husband back or not? And what choice did I really have? As a provisional replica, the nanites in my body would expire after four days, taking me with them. I suppose I could have just sat on the hospital bed and waited to expire, but I holstered the gun and left. If I was a soulless abomination, all I knew was that I loved my husband with every fiber of my created body. That central part of my being seemed unchanged. Except, somehow... Impossibly, I had murdered Jonathan. I walked out of the hospital and blinked against the light, waiting for my nanites to adjust. Nothing changed. Of course it didn't. I was a provisional replica. They'd explained this to me, but the absence of my theming was more obvious outside the hospital. I wouldn't have access to theming or customizations or anything until I tracked down and killed my original. Did that count as murder or suicide? I wonder what Jonathan's family would think about that. Not that I could contact them to find out. His parents' theming would screen all calls from me. If I approached them in person, I'd be edited out of their vision and hearing, just like I was a bit of garbage. The same with my friends and my family, to protect them from emotional harm, according to Skylar. The only theming that my nanites would do would be to mask them from me, too. I was a ghost in this world. And the world was a ghost of itself. Without my theming, the world was mostly neutral white. White buildings, people in white clothing, reparative machines flying or crawling all over the place. I knew that the machines were there, any citizen could file a maintenance report, but I hadn't realized how many. I saw a squat rectangular one following a man who tossed a sandwich wrapper on the ground. The machine vacuumed it up and trundled off to find more debris. Another one, shaped like a caterpillar, crawled over the surface of a building, cleaning the glass. What was the point in cleaning the glass when so few things in the view were real? And yet, there it was. It was a different world from the one I remembered. Granted, there were a few historic buildings tucked in among the white blocks, but even those were different. The stained glass at St. Andrew's Church had always glowed with jewel-toned angles, but without theming, the unadulterated sunlight reflected off muted geometric colors. I stopped in front of it, tempted to go in and find a priest, even though I wasn't religious at all. Someone bumped into me, the world flashed into color as if the entire street had turned into a carnival. A Filipino woman with spiky pink hair stood in front of me. Sorry, 
She held a silver juggling club in each hand, and three others littered the ground between us. So sorry, I was practicing and didn't look where I was going. A giant arch of clear glass bulbs framed the church. The street was coated with sawdust. I could smell buttered popcorn in the air. Are you all right? She transferred the juggling clubs to one hand and bent down to pick up the fallen clubs. I'm really sorry. It's fine. I smiled and tried to wave it away reassuringly, but the color was leaching out of the air. The woman's hair stayed spiky and pink, so it was really dyed, but her clothes faded back to white with the rest of the world. For a few seconds, I had seen her theming. I knelt to reach for the remaining juggling club, which seemed to be really present. Do you need a hand with those? She grinned and snatched it off the ground, tossing it into the air. I got it. Thanks. The club's silver foil had faded to white now. It was so tempting to touch the woman again to make the theming come back. Instead, I nodded and turned away from her. I knew that theming could be shared, but had never experienced that when the world was set to neutral. Heading down the street, I veered slightly to brush against a tall, lean, white man. The street darkened to night. Neon signs advertising opium dens and casinos blossomed along the buildings. People in evening gowns and tuxedos strolled along the sidewalks for ten paces before the night faded away, back to white. I took a sidestep to brush against a petite black woman, and the world shifted again, bringing me into a world made of cartoon characters. My own hands had fat, three-fingered gloves. All the signage became cutesy and friendly. Little robins zipped everywhere, chortling happy songs. As it began to fade, I looked for someone else to gently bump into and stopped. A cartoonish haunted castle with a no trespassing sign faded into a large slum of broken down buildings. What was this? Had I ever passed this before? I mentally backtracked to the church, using it as a landmark, and remembered a huge construction project that I'd passed daily on my way to the gallery with more serious versions of the no trespassing signs that the cartoon world had shown me. But it wasn't a construction project. It was inhabited. An old white woman smoking a cigarette sat on the steps of one of the broad porches that spanned the base of the apartment towers. I waited for her or the cigarette to morph, but both were really there. I wasn't seeing someone else's theme. This woman was there, and she was old. As in, genuinely old. Not just a theme, not an actor. Fine wrinkles puckered her lips and drew paths from the corners of her eyes. A large liver spot rested on one temple. She had silver hair braided into a crown around her head. She stared at me, and then squinted. You can see me? Um, yes. I looked down at the white cement, suddenly conscious of the fact that I had been staring at her. Sorry. You would check out? That brought my gaze back up to the slum, and I belatedly realized there were curtains in some windows, lights in others. You live here? Yep. She blew a smoke ring and tilted her head. So, check out? Not, not exactly. If anything, I was the opposite of a checkout. 
My body was created by nanites and flooded with them, waiting to shut everything down after four days. A checkout had chosen to stop using renewal stations and had only their natural body with all the vagaries nature could provide. I took a step back, as if she would be able to tell I was a provisional replica just by looking at me. I just have my theming turned off. She snorted, looking down the street, eyes squinted against the sun. Tourists. She took another drag of her cigarette. Go ahead and stare at the old lady. Glad to be a novelty for you. Cheeks flaming, I turned and walked away from her. Because here's the thing. Checkouts weren't that common, but at least they made sense, whereas my existence was a sign that something was very, very broken. I stopped in the middle of the street, people weaving around me. My original was a checkout now. She had been for weeks, actually, if I understood Skylar's explanation of the timeline. My original had fled right after kill- I squeezed my eyes shut, as if that could keep the ideas still. I existed only because my husband was dead. My funny, thoughtful, sometimes inexplicable husband was dead. His habit of humming when he was assembling a part was dead. His penchant for sitting in rooms with the lights off, lost in thought, was dead. His itch for vacations in random parts of the world was dead. The sensitive spot where his thigh met his hip and the whirl of random hair on his upper back and the way he rolled his eyes at the start of laughter. How could Jonathan be gone? I covered my face with my hands, digging my nails into my forehead. Nothing made sense. I could not fathom a world in which I killed Jonathan. We had had, maybe, two fights, and it depended on if you counted the flannel shirt incident as a fight. The urge to hit someone bubbled up inside me, and I bit down hard on the inside of my lip to lock myself in place. That urge? That was new. That was whatever they had edited into me. I had never felt a violent urge like this before, and there's no way that the person I had been would have harmed Jonathan. It didn't make any sense. What, I bashed him in the head because he preferred to use a toothbrush instead of nanites? or because he drummed his fingers on the table when he was working? Maybe I became overwhelmed because he liked his sandwiches cut on the diagonal, so then I carved him like I carved an orange? I hadn't done that. I knew that. What if, what if they weren't just making a mistake, but my original had been framed? I dropped my hands, staring at the naked streets and the exposed maintenance robots. Jonathan worked for the government, Sure, we had peace between national governments, but there were also groups who went way beyond just checking out. There were people who wanted to reverse the use of nanites completely, like, like the Church of Judgment Day preparation. The judges were always trying to knock out renewal stations or robot factories. Why not take out one of the people who made renewal stations possible? On the other hand, the judges always took credit for the chaos they caused. So maybe not them, but still, it made more sense for it to be someone like them than for it to have been me. And Jonathan had maybe known that he was a target because he'd been a little jumpy leading up to the party. But what had happened after that? Had he told me? My memories were a blank after the party. Gah. I stared up at the sky and clenched my fists. 
I needed to know what had happened after the party and the renewal station. What had my original known that I didn't? What had she... I could ask her. She would know about me. The creation of provisional replicas might be rare, but they were a matter of public record by law. My original would have watched the trial because I would have done that. She would know that a PR of her had been made, and... And she would know that I would realize that we had been framed. The whole point of a PR was that we had the same memories and core personality as the originals. We thought the same way. So, what would I do if I were me? Ridiculous question, I know. But I also knew the answer to it. The original Holly would want me to find her. She would go to the marketplace where I first met Jonathan. It was a place we'd returned to on our anniversaries and was a place that he and I had used in the past as a meeting place. For the first time in my replicated life, I knew what I needed to do. I was going to meet myself. What I had always loved about Riverside Marketplace was that it was open air, right by the river. The produce was always fresh, and there were artists who had hand-loomed fabrics for sale and other fascinating, delightful crafts. It was by the river. It was not open air. With my theming turned off, a high, clear dome arched over the entire thing, Maintenance bots crawled across the surface, cleaning the glass and making repairs. Inside, where I expected to see a quaint old-school market, I found sterile white walls with just enough texture to feel like the stucco I had always seen them as. Shaking my head, I walked down the curving faux streets to the citrus stand where I'd met Jonathan. The closer I got, the more my stomach clenched. I hated everything about this. My hand went to the gun at my side, as if that were comforting. And the terrifying thing was that I felt better with my hand on the grip. What had they turned me into? I rounded the bend in the road, and there was the citrus stand. Piled with actual citrus, thank God, and Stilla stood in the booth with her hair in the usual mop of curls over her eyes. She was wearing a homespun vest over a plain white shirt and trousers. I lifted my hand to wave and stopped. The part of my brain that had been getting increasingly nervous about being here finally told me why. If my original had been framed, whoever had killed Jonathan would have good reason to want me dead as well. Heck, maybe there was a reason Skylar's people hadn't been able to find my original. Maybe someone had already killed her. And I had come to a place where Jonathan and I were well known to meet. I'd picked the most obvious spot to go. In the guise of slowing to look at a stand of blank white cloth of different textures, I turned, sweeping my gaze around the marketplace. Identifying danger points, the things that didn't belong, was nearly impossible because everything looked wrong with my theming off. I picked up a piece of cloth and held it up, turning with it as if I wanted to look at it in better light. That gave me a full 360 of the marketplace. Knots of people moved through the area. Conversations that would be muted with my theming on to protect the privacy of those talking filled the air with a constant, discernible hum of chatter. Heard that Willem and Stan are dating again. Off autopilot and drove straight into the pier. 
people almost never remember to look up. If there was a lookout, they would be above me. The fact that I knew this nearly distracted me from, you know, actually looking up. But I did, trying to surreptitiously take in the five-story buildings surrounding the marketplace. No good. Looks like she knows. A man spoke in a low murmur. I nearly spun toward the voice and had to force myself to keep my gaze to the cloth. Instead, I scanned the windows, hoping to catch sight of whoever that was so I could make a plan. Instead, I made eye contact with a woman in a third-story window dressed in dingy white. Not freshly printed clothes. Not my original. She had graying hair pulled back into a ponytail and held a rifle. Even from here, I could just see the moment when her finger tightened on the trigger. Take the shot. A flash of movement to my right. The muzzle of the energy rifle brightened. I threw myself sideways, but the pulse brushed my ribs. Numbness coated my right rib cage and arm, spreading down my leg and up my neck. I used the last of my momentum to try to throw a jab toward the voice. My arm barely moved. I had maybe two seconds of useful consciousness, which was just long enough to wonder what they were going to do with me before all the white falseness was replaced by a true dark theme. Day one, evening. I regained consciousness before I had full control of my body which was probably a good thing because it made it easier for me to stay limp as I was dragged across a carpeted floor and thrown onto a table. As feeling crept back into my limbs, I kept my eyes closed and tried to control my heart rate and breathing. It sounded like there were four people in the room, which made sense as a classic fire team, and how did I know all of this? Did it matter? Someone had just snatched me, and the skills that the government had edited into me might keep me alive. The man I had heard outside spoke from somewhere past my feet, maybe near the door that they dragged me through. Again, no, our mandate is to keep her here and restrained. A new voice with a nasal whine stood near my head. This is wrong. I don't care what Windseed's demands are, keeping this thing alive is flat wrong. For a moment, I thought he was talking about my demands, but my original would also be Winseed. We had the same name, and in this context, it was more likely that she was the one they were referring to. And this thing was probably me. But I couldn't for the life of me figure out who these people were or how I would have met them. Sometime after she'd checked out, my original had met them and recruited them to do what? Kidnap me? We wait because that's what orders are for. Nasal man snorted. Orders? Since when do you care about hierarchy? We're not the military. We aren't sheep following orders. The man from outside said, You know you followed orders when you agreed to do this. I agreed to come. I didn't and never have agreed that we should keep it alive. He slapped the top of my head like I was nothing but meat. A woman with a slight uncorrected lisp said, So you kill her. Fine. And then what? It's gotta be her or the original, and Biolox needs someone alive. Winsey doesn't cooperate? This is our backup. Biolock. 
The only thing I had locked with a biolock was my passphrase manager, and it didn't protect anything really vital. They wanted my list of citrus suppliers? I had no idea what they were talking about, but I was beginning to get a spatial map of the place. From their voices and echoes, I had them relatively well-placed. The nasal man was by my head, outside man was at my feet, the woman was near him, and it sounded like her voice was being reflected by glass, so probably near a window. There was another set of footsteps off to my left, which would be consistent with a classic fire team. A week ago, I wouldn't have known that a fire team was a sub-subunit of infantry, or that the name reflected the focus on fire and movement tactical doctrine in combat. Of course, a week ago, I apparently hadn't existed. Taking a chance, I cracked my lids without moving my head so that I could see who my captors were and how they were armed. Nasal Man was wearing a mask over his face, so all I could tell was that he was pale and liked to work out. Then my attention was caught by the wall behind him. A rough stone wall with vintage, fake plastic ivy stapled to it. For a moment, I thought my theming had been turned back on, then recognition swept over me. I knew this place. It was a historic Italian-esque restaurant, a chain that had once had locations in malls across the planet. This particular location had been lovingly restored by one of Jonathan's friends. Why the heck was I in Vikram Ortega's restaurant? I closed my eyes again and tried to think. It was next to the market, and he only opened it on Wednesdays, unless he was bored, in which case he would send out a pop-up message to anyone on his list. So, they could guess that it would be closed. No, wait, they wouldn't have to guess. My original could have told them that. Regardless, one of these jerks was talking about killing me, and I was not in the mood for that. I had a gun, but there was no chance they had let me keep it. So, what did I have as weapons? The fact that they thought I was asleep. The fact that I knew the layout of the place because Vikram had wanted to show it off after he restored it. There should be chairs around the table, which would give me at least one thing I could fight with. I let my hand droop over the edge of the table, hoping to feel a chair. No luck, although I did feel the edge of the table and sorted out that I was on a pair of two tops. She moved! Well, shit. I tried to keep my breathing slow and uninterrupted, even while every muscle wanted to tense for action. Outside man sighed. You're jumpy. Y'all just put her down crooked. Do you really think I'm paying that little attention? That was a torso shot with a para-ray. She'll be a sack of noodles for another hour. Heavy footsteps accompanied Nasal Man's voice as he approached from the left. That was where the door was. Part of me was frozen with terror on the table. But there was another part of me that reviewed where each of them was in the room and laid out a clear line of attack. It was almost like being a visitor in my own body as I lifted my left leg and planted my foot. Arching my hips, I moved to the side to grasp a chair and brought it smashing into outside man. He yelped and staggered back. I continued my arch, turning it into a roll that brought me off the table into a crouch. Nasal man shouted, grabbing for his sidearm. No, wait, that was my gun. A surge of visceral possessiveness brought my right arm sweeping up to shove one of the two tops toward him. I'd wanted to distract him, but my body had other ideas. I was stronger than I'd been, 
The table went flying through the air, slamming into the goons who were only just beginning to react. Nasal Man had gotten my gun out, but the table sent him stumbling back. I lunged, grabbing his arm and putting it into a quick arm lock that hyperextended his elbow and popped it out of joint. He screamed and dropped my gun. I caught it as it fell, swinging it up and around to bear on him. My finger reflexively went to the trigger and fired. The energy beam evaporated into smoke. It wasn't surprising, but gah, assholes. Skylar had left me with no protection. My brain moved on to mapping how to kill Nasal Man by crushing his temple with the butt of the gun and how it would be so satisfying. I shuddered. Satisfying? Was this how they were motivating me? By making it satisfying to hurt someone? I shoved him away from me and dove toward the kitchen. They'd have the main doors watched. Slapping my hand against the swinging door, I slammed through into the kitchen. Everything was gleaming stainless steel and laid out with elegant industrial precision. It was dead simple to spot the chef's knives stuck to magnets on the far wall. As I rounded the stainless steel prep table, the woman powered through the door after me. I grabbed the cutting board and flung it like a frisbee. It spun in the air and its edge slammed into her throat. Without waiting for her to hit the ground, I snatched a pair of chef's knives from the wall. My hands knew these. They knew the weight and assessed the balance. They knew when to release for the right arcing flight. And as the stainless steel blades were spinning away from me, I grabbed another pair. A pair of meaty snicks and a yelp told me that they'd hit home as I dove for cover. Outside man had carried an energy pulse revolver that was fully capable of paralyzing me again, assuming he hadn't changed the charge level on it. My best option was to make it hard to get a beat on me. I hit the ground, peering under the counters for a glimpse of feet or legs. Instead, I saw bodies and blood. The woman on the floor wheezed. I'd crushed her trachea, but her nanites would be well on the way to repairing it. Wait, if she had nanites? I wasn't used to that being a question. Everyone in my life checked in on a regular basis, but if these folks were checkouts, any damage I did to them would be permanent. Outside man spoke from just on the other side of the swinging door. I could see one boot and would bet that above the table, the muzzle of his gun would be poking through the opening. Come on now, let's be reasonable. With all that editing they did to you, you've got to know that there's no way out. Certainly not through that door, and they were probably sending someone to work around the building to come in through the service entrance. It's what I would do. I hated these thoughts from someone else's experience, but they were also keeping me alive. Come out and let's talk. That's all your original wants. Wetting my lips, I looked around and remembered, really remembered, my memory. I remembered being here with Jonathan when Vikram was showing off the kitchen. I remembered him showing us the old waste pipe in the floor, which city codes had required him to close off because it didn't feed into the recycling system. He'd complained because the pipes were original and authentic, so he refused to make a permanent change. He was proud of skirting around the law by using the building's landmark status. I rose onto my elbows and toes to low-crawl to the pipe. He'd pointed out the vintage manhole cover, which didn't compete with the aesthetic. He'd also casually mentioned that it weighed over 100 kilograms. I had no idea how much I could lift, but they'd be sending in backups any moment. I liked my odds better if I at least tried. Drawing my feet in, I went up to an awkward crouch next to the manhole cover. 
There were holes in the top to insert a pry bar, but I didn't have one. Joy. I shifted to the balls of my feet and slid my fingers into the holes. Testing it, all I could tell was that my grip was secure and that the thing was hella heavy. It would make noise when I pulled it away. The wheezing would help mask some, but not all of it. Better to let outside man's voice cover it, which meant I needed him to talk again. Shooting me doesn't seem like a way to inspire trust. I heaved up and it shifted. The plan was to just approach, but you spotted us. I spotted a sniper. That's not an approach. The cover scraped across the floor. Hey! It was open enough. I couldn't see exactly where I was going, but at least there were no guns. Thank God for vintage sewers and an obsession with historical accuracy. In the sewers, I realized two things. The first was that I could see in the dark. Everything glowed with heat, infrared. I was perceiving infrared light in ways that made me think the change was not in nanites, but in an edit to my physical form. And the second thing was that I knew how to kill people. I mean, I had time to start to understand that I had probably killed someone. The fact that someone had tried to kill me? Scary. The fact that I knew how to kill them back? Terrifying. Utterly terrifying. I knew that twisting someone's neck the way they did in cinema would do nothing. It was harder than that to break a neck. The easiest way was to anchor the chin and provide a sharp, focused blow on the vertebrae to cause a dislocation, which would sever the spine. I knew that it was still hard to do and that a better choice would be any number of chokeholds. I finally just stopped moving in the sewers and sank down on a corner of cold cement and sat shivering. What had they turned me into? Even if I found my original and executed her and got my normal life back, even if I did all of that and had Jonathan revived, would he even recognize this woman? I wasn't the woman he married, that was for certain. I'm honestly not sure how long I sat there in the glowing darkness. A timer appeared in the corner of my vision. It startled me into sitting up from the wall I'd been slumped against. Adrenaline propelled me into a crouch as if I could escape a projected thing, but the glaring red icon shone against the infrared curves of the sewer tunnels. Warning, three hours until nanite depletion. Nanite depletion? What the heck? I mean, yes, nanites would wear out over time, it's why we use renewal stations weekly, but I'd been alive for less than a day. I blinked, but the image stayed on behind my closed eyes. Rubbing my face, I looked around, paying attention for the first time in hours. My hands felt numb. They shook. I'd need to hold the gun's grip with both hands to stabilize it. Stop! My voice echoed down the tunnels. Stop, stop, stop. I did not want these thoughts in my head. I did not want to be this person who thought about threat assessment and angles of attack before I thought about anything else. Dropping the gun, I kicked it away from myself. The ceramic skittered across the tunnel, still glowing with the warmth of my hands, and spun to point toward me. A little voice in my head whispered all the reasons that kicking it away was bad. I might have damaged the safety. It was armed. Someone had wanted to kill me earlier. Nasal Man seemed to have wanted me dead because he objected to replicas on principle. 
but outside man had said that my original wanted to talk to me. Of course, he'd also talked to me about knowing about memory tech, which was just wrong. I was an orange carver for crying out loud. What? Jonathan was the one who did things with memory and nanites and... Shit. My original had reportedly carved Jonathan, which... Okay, which was just wrong on multiple levels. But the point right now was that it reminded me that my original did things I couldn't even imagine after our last renewal. So it was likely that I didn't have whatever information they wanted. I buried my fingers in my hair, pressing them into my scalp. For Jonathan, I could do this for him. I didn't want these skills and thoughts, but if I were going to have them, I would use them for him. Pushing myself to my feet, I wobbled a little. The tunnel spun around me, and I grabbed for the wall to steady myself. Whoa. Closing my eyes, I waited for the spinning to pass. My legs and arms felt too heavy and a little numb. What was wrong with me? I mean, besides everything. Warning. Two hours and 55 minutes until nanite depletion. This felt like more than nanite depletion. All that happened when the tiny bots ran out of your body was that you got drunk faster and bruised easier. You aged. That was it. This was... This was something different. Not debilitating, just... Like I didn't belong in my own body. <laughs> right. Well, how much claim did I have to being in this body? Anyway, I'd swing by a renewal station to get a top off before I made my next plan. I headed for the fire escape, walking a careful circle around the gun. No, wait. I wanted to circle it, but my fingers itched and my stomach tightened. Even if it only worked on my original, leaving it didn't feel safe. Sighing, I picked up the useless gun. The only thing it was good for was killing my original, and I didn't want to do that. Not... yet. Not until I'd talked to her and found out why but my hands moved by reflex and shoved the gun back into the holster. Were any of my reactions me? Warning. Two hours and 50 minutes until nanite depletion. The timer had dropped to two hours and 25 minutes by the time I got to the nearest renewal station. All of my efforts to minimize it or change the theming as I walked had exactly no effect. On the plus side, no one ambushed me or followed me. The renewal station, stripped of theming, no longer looked like the fairy garden that I usually visited. It was a leftover childhood theme, and I knew it was ridiculous, but there had been something delightful about stepping into a giant iris and lying down on the velvety yellow beard under a vivid purple canopy. These were booths, simple white cubicles with a couch inside. I'd seen one before, when I was a teen, and filled with a sense of moral purpose, I'd wanted to know what I was putting into my body, so I'd turned off theming at the renewal station. It had been dull. For a while, I'd used a concert theme and watched my favorite band, the Sarajevo Roses. Then it was a hill surrounded by lavender, and eventually I'd come back to my childhood theme because... nostalgia? I settled onto the white couch and felt it conform to my body. Letting my head drop back, I sighed 
and closed my eyes. The countdown timer vanished. Without my consent, the system placed a call. My contact, Skylar, appeared in my vision with a worried frown. His shoulders relaxed as he saw me. Holly, hi, how are you? There's a countdown timer to nanite depletion. He nodded and then waited. And? And? The fatigue in my limbs had started to fade. What the heck is up with that? He blinked. Um, it was in the pamphlet. On the couch, I tightened my fists against the urge to throttle him. If he'd actually been in front of me, I'm not sure what I would have done. Sorry, didn't really read it, had a little bit on my mind. Skylar sighed. He did that a lot. Looking down, his long nose seemed even more like a knife. He sighed again. Right. You have to check in daily or you'll die. I gaped at him. This wasn't how nanites worked. If a person didn't check in, they just started aging and became susceptible to disease. You mean eventually? I mean that if you hadn't checked in tonight, you would be dead in three hours. He looked up and compressed his lips. You were given skills and the ability to kill. The daily check-ins are a leash. That would have been useful information to know. I tried. I gave you a pamphlet. I threw it away. You saw me throw it away. I also saw you open it. Skylar grimaced as if this were somehow my fault. To be safe, I told you to check in tonight. And there's the countdown timer. And you probably started feeling dizzy. The fact that you didn't actually read the pamphlet is not on me. I'm going to kill you. My stomach went cold at the words because I'd meant them. He smiled sourly. You would not be the first to make that threat. Or try. My heart was pounding against my ribs, and rage shook me all the way to the surface of my skin. Since you didn't read it, let me clarify some things. For the rest of your life, you'll need to check in daily. Or, as a provisional replica, you'll die. When I say the rest of your life, I mean four days. After four days, check-ins won't work any longer. The nanite population in your body can be made permanent, so you'd become a stable replica, but experience has shown that if a PR doesn't find their original within three days, they're not going to. We tack on an extra day for orientation, so statistically, four days is the right motivation and time to give you. And then what? You make another one of me and she starts again? No. Skylar shook his head against the darkness behind my eyelids. That would be against the law. Your last-ditch effort. If you fail, your original is likely to go unpunished because we can't find her. Do people ever just give up and let their original get away? Sure, but we don't even try to revive the people who aren't good candidates as provisional replicas. He shrugged. I'm sure you're absolutely delighted to know that the system projects that you have an 83% chance of finding your original before the end. Delighted is not the word I would pick. I ground my teeth together and opened my eyes so I had something besides his face in darkness to stare at. The blank white ceiling of the renewal booth was not much of an improvement. The system is repairing damage to your hands. What happened? I snorted. Aren't you watching my every move? Also in the pamphlet, you went to Riverside Marketplace, which is private property, so no, I can't access surveillance there without a warrant. 
But I get to review your uploads after renewal, so that'll be a fun few hours of fast-forwarding through your activities. I gaped at the image of the man. Memories were sacrosanct. They were encrypted on upload and rigorously protected. You're kidding. You can rifle through my memories, but when I'm actually being shot at, you can't do anything? He sat forward. Someone shot at you? Yes, there was a sniper at the marketplace, and then a fire team grabbed me. Shit. He ran his hand through his hair and grimaced. Tell me about the attack. Are you okay? Grinding my teeth together, I tried to think. A sniper above, a four-person fire team. I suspect that there was a lookout because they were ready for me the moment I came into view. I shouldn't know that, but I was dead certain about it. They snatched me, but all's good. I got away. Skylar held up his hand. Wait, wait, they snatched you? Yep, but I'm fine. No damage to government property. That's not... <sighs> All right, look, you have every right to be angry and bitter, you think? But that's not going to help us if it keeps you from telling me what's going on. Why bother? You can just watch it, right? The muscles at the corner of his jaw bunched, and he looked away from the screen for a moment before sighing. First of all, I can see and hear, but I don't get your thoughts or any of the other senses, so your assessment, your perception... I still need you to tell me that. Second, the reason to tell me is so that I can help you. You have three days left. I can do research for you based on what you uncover. So please, tell me what happened. Tell me what you think. A chill ran through me at the reminder that I only had three more days to live. I bit the inside of my lower lip to try to keep the terror inside, and then nodded and told him everything I could remember. At the end of it, Skylar sighed again. That sounds like Icon. Icon and not Judgers? Doesn't fit the profile for Judgers. They would have used an incendiary device to try to take other people with you. Icon is known for more targeted strikes, mostly aimed at the renewal stations of high-profile targets. What? Why? I mean, why would they be involved? You tell me. I stared at him at a loss. I still couldn't think of any reason that my original would have any connection to a terrorist group like Icon. What I knew about them could be scribbled on a cocktail napkin. North American-based, hated nanite technology, blew things up. And now I could apparently add kidnapping to my tiny store of knowledge. Skylar looked into the corner for a moment, the visual cue in a chat that someone was accessing another screen. All right. I'll review the attack and see if I can sort out who specifically attacked you. Meanwhile, I've given you access to classified intel on Icon to see if you can spot connections that I would overlook. Just use a regular search engine and you'll be able to use the government database. That... that doesn't sound very classified. He shrugged. A person without this access will see a page that has been edited to remove redacted information. Crap. Is anything real? Yep. He stared at me for a moment, or maybe he was reading something on his screen. Do you need anything else? So many things, and none of them were things he would provide. Actually, yeah. You said that the charges in my gun will only hurt my original. What happens if Icon comes at me again? I expected him to shut me down, 
to tell me that I'd survived the first attempt, to tell me about laws that prevented him from arming me. But he leaned to the side and squinted for a moment, looking down and to the left. All right. I can't give you full ammunition, but I can set it so that the charges will work on you and anyone without nanites in their system. Checkouts make up the majority of ICON members. The rush of relief I felt belonged to someone else. The urge to vomit I felt immediately afterward, though, was definitely mine. Here's the thing. Going back to my apartment was stupid. I knew that. There were people who wanted to find me, and regardless of my original's plans, they wanted to hurt me. So going to a location where I had a personal connection was not bright. But, but I wanted to see the crime scene. Skylar had shown it to me in the virtual, sure, but that could be manipulated. Heck, the real world could be manipulated with theming on. My theming was off, so I would see it as it truly was. As it truly was. <laughs> I thought I lived in a nice part of town. It wasn't that it turned out that our apartment was in a bad neighborhood, just that all the neighborhoods were the same. Under the cover of darkness, I slipped into our bedroom from the balcony. Luckily, my biometrics unlocked the doors as well as they always had, so I didn't have to break in. The lights recognized me and started to fade up. Off. My heart raced as the room returned to darkness. I stood next to the door, listening for any sounds that did not belong to the night. Wetting my lips, I slid the door shut and stepped further into the room. Even with my enhanced night vision, I had the same sense of disorientation that I'd had at the hospital. Our bed had a plain white comforter in a plain white room. Our butternut linens and sage green walls, textured with uneven plaster inspired by Venice, had been a theme. The floor actually was wood, mostly. There were parts that had been damaged and replaced at some point with composite wood. On the one hand, it felt completely alien. On the other, the fact that it didn't feel like my apartment made Jonathan's absence less acute. I eased through the bedroom and padded down to the kitchen, grateful that at least the texture of the floor felt familiar. We lived in what I thought was a cute little split-level apartment with charming architectural details from the 20-teens, all granite countertops and open floor plans. At this point, I honestly would not have been surprised if it had turned out to just be a big, empty box. But the layout of the rooms was the same. Our furniture was in the right places. The potted plants were actual plants, although not as lush as I remembered. The doors were where they should be. I mean, sure, things were where they were supposed to be, but even in the reflected streetlight with my night vision, almost everything was the same neutral white. Even the mural of the sea on the backsplash of the kitchen was gone. Swallowing, I stopped in the middle of a plain white kitchen, looking at plain white counters and plain white chairs. Any hint that a crime occurred here had been scrubbed away, but there was one spot of color not dried blood, orange. A bowl of navel oranges with glossy pebbled skin sat on the corner. The bowl was as blandly white as the rest of the kitchen, but the oranges were real. I walked over to them and stopped with my hand out. Some part of me expected them to feel different or evaporate or something when I touched them. 
Biting down on my fear, I picked up an orange. The skin was firm, textured with familiar tiny dimples. The heft was right, and it filled my hand with the same comfort that the pistol grip of the gun had. But this comfort was mine. This wasn't edited into me. This wasn't part of some unknown other person. It was me. I had picked this orange out. When? I tightened my grip on the yielding rind because I didn't know when I had bought this orange. Or more specifically, I hadn't. My original had. Sometime after my last memory, she had bought this fruit. Probably at the marketplace, because that was the only place I bought oranges from these days. Or not. I had never bought oranges. In my only visit to the marketplace, someone had tried to kill me. Panic flurried in my middle, and I took a slow breath, trying to stave it off. Swallowing did nothing to keep the fear in place. A craft knife was in my hand. I didn't remember grabbing it, but I held it like a weapon, which was not me. Reversing the grip, I placed the tip on the skin of the orange and traced a spiral from the navel down to the side. I was an orange carver. I did not kill people. The memory of a woman wheezing erased the quiet. Orange carving was an ephemeral art, and it was mine. I knew the weight of the knife and assessed the balance of it. The bright tang of resin popped from the skin as the knife released essential oils into the air. The scent of blood was metallic by contrast. The navel orange had thicker skin than other varieties, making it good for textured work. The victim's face had a series of spiral carvings cut into the flesh. Gripping the knife, I let out a slow breath. I was not going to let them take orange carving away from me. This was a skill I had earned. It hadn't been edited into me. I hadn't cheated. I had practiced and practiced and learned to carve oranges. I should have asked to see Jonathan's face. I didn't want to. If someone wanted to frame me, using orange carving techniques would make it look more like I had done it. But I know my own work. Stop. I didn't kill Jonathan. Biting my lip, I carved a parallel spiral next to the first, carefully working the loose rind up and away from the groove I worked into the surface. There are two basic forms of orange sculpture, whole fruit or rind only. With whole fruit, the fruit inside gets showcased as a change of texture. In rind-only work, one extracted the fruit from inside and created elaborate baskets or lanterns from the remaining rind. This navel orange had a thickness and pliability that lent itself to rind-only work. Opening the orange along the spiral I had sliced, I carefully pulled the wedges out. The scent of juice carries a different, sweeter orange than the resinous oils of the rind. I popped a piece into my mouth. My teeth sliced through the membrane, sending a spurt of tart liquid across my palate. The acidity puckered the inside of my mouth with a slight metallic tang. I spat it out. For a moment, I was absolutely convinced that someone was trying to poison me. But no. No. When I was a kid, I had my original, had edited my taste buds to make oranges sweeter. The glistening, half-chewed fruit sat on the table in a puddle of my spit. The orange wasn't the problem. It was real. I sat at the table, 
and wept. Half of my life was fake in ways I hadn't known. I found myself going through our drawers, looking for, not for clues, but for things that were real. Jonathan's things, in particular, anchored me. He had a rock he'd picked up when we'd gone to Iceland. It was a gray stone, worn round and smooth by glaciers. A pair of dice from when we'd sat in on a D&D game in Monte Carlo, thrilled to be playing an old-fashioned game with actual pencils and actual paper instead of an immersive. They glistened like six-sided rubies next to a seagull feather from our trip to the San Fran archipelago. Other things, I remembered, were gone. His Swiss Army pocket knife, handed down to him from his grandfather. The blades had been sharpened into concave arcs. His collection of vintage hotel key cards, gone. The St. George's medallion that he'd picked up in Venice, also gone. I found plenty of blank white discs and rectangles and lozenges. So here's the question. Did my original take them? Or did they never exist in the first place? I tucked the remaining keepsakes into my pockets because... Because the weight of the rock in my pocket made me think of Jonathan with every step I took... The bare apartment felt like his personality had been leached out of it. I wanted something, anything, to anchor me. I had a rock, dice, and a feather. And I also needed to do some work. Wiping my eyes on my sleeve, I opened my desk interface and started researching Icon. I could do this anywhere, of course, but... And I know this was tactically stupid. My chair felt right, and I was desperate for scraps of normal... If I didn't look at the white curves, I'd think it was the burnished steel repro that I'd picked up in college. In some ways, the research was a similar unpacking process. I'd been aware of Icon in passing, but didn't really know what lay below the surface. I knew that they were disaffected, but honestly thought that they were just opposed to body pollution like the judges. I was wrong. I had no idea they were actively trying to figure out how to make their own versions of the technology. Far from objecting to nanites, Icon considered themselves freedom fighters. They didn't object to nanite technology per se, but they wanted it free and unregulated, out of governmental control. With my new clearance, I saw footage of Icon blowing up renewal stations, once with three generations of a family inside. I saw a sniper picking off people in Madrid, trying to leave a renewal station. Everything I saw showed them going to unethical lengths to try to bring down the government with no qualms about collateral damage to check-ins. In one clip, an Icon member walked into a renewal center and cut the throats of five people until someone... Holy shit. I knew that knife blade nose. Zooming in, I watched my contact sprint into the building and take down the Icon member as if they were a slug... Well, I guess it was good to know that Skylar hadn't been bluffing when he dared me to try to kill him. My mind kept going back to what Skylar had asked about why my original would have a connection with Icon. That was really the point, wasn't it? That the person I was trying to find was me. To a certain degree, I didn't need to know why she ran. I only needed to know what I would have done if I were on the run. So if something happened to frighten me, something that made me believe I couldn't trust the government, what would I do? Would I approach a terrorist organization? Well, 
Would I do that now? Because I sure as heck couldn't trust the government with their pamphlets and built-in death sentences. But those videos of Icon, those were pretty damning. On the other hand, my original wouldn't have seen those. I sat up in my chair. Oh, my original would still think that it was a group of disaffected crackpots. Now that, the image I'd had in my head of them before this, was something I could see running toward. All right then, that gave me an angle to work toward. I needed to find a harmless front for Icon, one that someone without my clearance could access. What I needed to know was what my original would have read, so I could follow her thought process. I'd ask Skylar to turn my access back down for a few minutes, and maybe I'd ask about his action hero experience. I flicked the footage with him into a save bin for later. The next file started playing. It was a teletree of Jonathan. The footage sucked all the oxygen out of the room. He looked exactly the same, rendered in these floating pixels as he did in my memory. Part of me had been terrified that I would find out that I had edited him to be more attractive. But now, there he was with broad cheekbones and soft round nose. The mop of glossy dark curls, which normally fell over his tan forehead, had been swept back with gel in his fancy look. A glimmer of silver dusted his lids, and his full lips were just a touch redder than their natural shade. My beloved had a fascination with physical makeup, but only broke out his vintage collection of powders for special occasions. Even before I saw the logo on the teletree, I knew that this was a talk at the Organisation Technologique Internationale. OTI was the global cooperative network that oversaw fair distribution of technology to all peoples. I listened to his soft tenor, letting the familiar sound wrap around me before I finally started listening. And while we all agree that it is important to allow people who do not wish, for whatever reason, to use technology, the freedom to check out, at the same time, we must acknowledge that this risks disenfranchising some citizens. While the obvious concerns revolve around maintaining a robust infrastructure for them independent of nanites, the larger concern is long-term. I'm going to use ICON as an example of why the question of checkouts is not a simple one. Renewal stations make the citizens who use them functionally immortal. As my colleague noted in her presentation earlier, this has been skewing voting rights, and while ICON cites this as one of their grievances, there have been serious governmental efforts to address that. So I think we need to consider a different question. Why do people check out? Some are clear-cut. Many religions do not permit alteration of the body. We've found ways to address that concern, such as goggles or earbuds. Likewise, Icon cites privacy and does not want the government to have access to their memories. Again, there are laws in place to restrict that access, as well as encrypting them. For a moment, I stopped listening. As a provisional replica, my memories were unencrypted. Skylar had said that he'd be pawing through my memories today. Did he have access to the whole thing, or only the days since my creation? But what about the individual who is simply bored by the over-easy regularity of their days? What do we do for the citizens of our world who need a sense of risk in order to feel alive? 
We've seen an upturn in extreme sports that suggests that, in the absence of natural risks, people are starting to create their own. More troubling? Violent crime is returning. A voice in the hallway caught my attention. We never heard our neighbors, ever. I turned my head, frowning. The white walls provided a handy reminder that my theming was off. Right, so the reason that I'd never heard my neighbors before was that my theme edited out the sound between apartments. Yay for created privacy? I turned back to the computer, but another quiet voice made the hair on the back of my neck stand on end. That wasn't a conversation. That was a command. Well, shit. I knew it was a risk coming here in the first place, that if Icon had someone watching for me at the market, then they would keep an eye on my apartment. I spun out of the chair, grabbing my gun. When the door slammed open, I was already against the wall beside it. A pair of hands. A gun. I waited until the target was in sight and fired. A man fell, the glow from my pulse gun spreading out from the side of his neck to leave him stunned and motionless. A woman dove through, low, and my gun kicked again, but the pulse evaporated into smoke as it touched her. She aimed an antique revolver at me, metal, black, and designed to do permanent harm. I dove toward her. My best strategy was to try to control the firearm. The gunshot cracked, but I'd startled her, and the shot went high. Twisting in midair, I spun my pulse gun into the side of her head. As she yelped, her revolver slipped from her grasp. Motion from my right through the open door gave me just enough warning to drop to the floor. Three more people in the hall, all armed, all aiming at me. I snatched her gun from the floor and rolled clear of the door. I needed to get out of here. Another crack of gunfire from the doorway. Something slapped into my left leg. I aimed both guns at the door and fired. Hers bucked in my hand with the recoil, sending the bullet wide. Apparently, they hadn't edited vintage firearms into me, but my body compensated and the next shots were steadier. I wasn't expecting to hit anyone, but somehow managed to land both shots. One of the bullets tore through a man's chest. A woman fell to the energy pulse. Inside the room, the woman I'd smacked was getting back to her feet. My gun was useless against her, so I fired her weapon. My body had calibrated for the recoil, and the bullet caught her in the shoulder and staggered her. I got to my feet. My left leg felt heavy and wet. Blood painted the white room in bright red spatters and smears. Every part of my being was screaming at me to get out. I limped across the room. With one hand, I fired my attacker's revolver at the window, shattering it. And then, I jumped. I dropped onto the couch of a renewal station, some blocks from my house. Outside the booth, a tiny cleaner bot was industriously cleaning up my trail of blood. At least my attackers couldn't follow me that way. Yay. As the couch wrapped around me and fresh nanites flooded into my body, the system placed a call. I ground my teeth, waiting until Skylar appeared. Oh, thank God. He leaned toward the screen. Are you all right? I think I killed someone. I hadn't planned to say that. I'd planned to yell at him. His jaw tightened and he nodded. You didn't. She was alive until we lost track of them. You knew? 
You left me alone there and you knew they were coming. I shot someone. Blood had been everywhere, but it hadn't been an arterial spray. And how did I know that? Why didn't you warn me that Icon was coming to my apartment? Because I didn't know. Bullshit! You just told me you saw... I didn't know until they were in your apartment. We can surveil that because it was already a crime scene. The rest of your building is not. You're kidding me. Look, I already told you this. The government is bound by laws and watchdog agencies. It's a stupid law. Is it? Do you want the government to be able to monitor private places? Do you want me to be able to turn on cameras in every place that a criminal act might occur? Or maybe you'd like me to use predictive technology to stop crimes before they happen, because we do have the ability to do that. But we don't, because free will, because privacy. So what, I'm just on my own? I'm sorry. Frustration made his voice rough. I can't monitor private places. That includes most buildings, many neighborhoods. Icon complains about privacy, but the fact is that they use their concern about privacy like a weapon. They have maps of where they can go without being seen. And so, no, I didn't realize that they were coming for you until they were in the apartment. I stared at him, breathing through clenched teeth. This is bullshit. It is. He looked away at another monitor. How's your leg? Healing. The hot ache of it had dwindled to a soft warmth. They'd shot me with a real bullet this time, not an energy weapon, which clarified their goals regarding me. So your government property is still operational. Skylar sighed, and his head dropped forward. I did send people, you know. As soon as I realized that you were under attack, we sent people. You just had it handled before- I handled it by shooting people with skills that I shouldn't even have. I'm not supposed to know how to shoot a gun or what arterial spray looks like. I'm a- Monster. I was a monster. I clamped my jaws shut and closed my eyes, but he was still there, and he looked sad, and I didn't want his goddamned pity. I wrenched my eyes open again. Forget it. So you can't spy on people. Great. Is there anything useful you can do? He swallowed and flicked the screen. A map replaced him, which was fine by me. This is where the local branch of Icon is based. It was the slum I'd gone past earlier, highlighted in urine yellow. We've had trouble pinning specific acts on them. I saw footage of you taking down a stabber. Ah, right. I should have guessed that would have turned up. The thing is... The assailant in that case was part of a cell, made to seem as if it operated independently, so Icon could condemn them as extremists if they were caught. He couldn't tell the government anything that would make charges stick on the top members of the organization. As for what I can do? The image in my vision shifted to something pulled out of my memory. The woman, with a mask over her face, moments before the cutting board slammed into her, I can tell you who the team yesterday was, who they likely were at any rate. This is an extrapolation based on your memory of the attack. Nice work there, by the way. On the couch, I shivered at this reminder that for all his comments about privacy, in the eyes of the law, none of them applied to me. I wasn't a citizen. To some people, I wasn't even human. The image of the woman morphed into a young white woman with sleek blonde hair in a boardroom setting. 
Andy Blackwell was a competitor in extreme ironing before checking out. She has since used her scuba training to disable multiple desalination plants, but has never been caught. Did you create a provisional replica for her? Nope, because analytics said that her PR would probably spend the entire week either giving us the finger or move on to immediately disabling a desalination plant. Careful, you'll give me ideas. The image changed to outside man and then morphed into a Latinx person with a streak of purple through their hair. Zoba Moss. Their family was displaced from the Antiguan diaspora after the sea levels rose. I felt an incongruous twist of shame at having misgendered them, even while Skylar was identifying them as someone who had attacked me. On the other hand, Zoba had been the one arguing to keep me alive. This is the first thing that pins them to any direct crime, but they are a primary recruiter for Icon. Very charismatic. And that's dangerous? Despots are often charismatic. So are movie stars. Skylar completely ignored me. The image changed to Nasal Man as he aimed a gun at me. His black mask morphed into a man with red curls and a piercing in his left nostril. Carl Newton, former lab tech. He checked out, and two weeks later, someone stole his equipment from his lab. The sniper, with her graying hair pulled back into a ponytail, was replaced with an image from before she checked out, a young woman standing on a pair of skis with a rifle over her back. Frederic Gorski, former Olympic champion in the biathlon. She became disaffected and checked out when Poland relinquished its sovereignty and joined the United World Government as a state. I had vague memories of that happening when I was 10, because they had been one of the last holdouts. I think the only ones remaining were tiny nations like Liechtenstein and Monaco, which retained independent status for tourism purposes, or places like Grand Cayman, which was still a tax haven. Otherwise, the global economy just made allocation of resources easier. It also meant that there wasn't anywhere my original could really flee. And finally, someone who was not at the scene, but whose voice you heard over the radio. The image changed again to a face I recognized from the news. Plump cheeks under striking dark brows stared back from a white woman wearing a pork pie hat. Jill Preston, Icon's leader, a disaffected former senator who famously checked out a few years back. I remembered that. Jonathan had been really bothered by it because he'd been at a couple of conferences with her and she was the only person he'd known, even in passing, who had checked out. Yes, I've heard of her. You know, Jonathan had run into her at some government conferences way back. You don't think... Skylar shook his head. We thought that as well. But when we scanned all of Preston's communications from before she checked out, we couldn't find any sign of contact between them. Your husband was a junior engineer back then. A senator would not have paid much mind to someone at his level. The map returned. But we do know that Preston and the others are likely based in the commons. Sorry, the common what? The urine yellow outline flashed over the slums. That's the name of the housing development. Preston moves around, but she's in residence there now. We want to raid the place, but there's a lot of red tape involved in doing so. Ironically, the skills they implanted warned me that he was holding something back. 
the slight dilation of his pupils, the swallow, the way he pursed his lips after he finished speaking. All of them said that there was something else. What aren't you telling me? I'm giving you all the information that I can. Carefully phrased. Skylar snorted. Laws are laws, so let's continue with what I can tell you. It's very likely that original Holly is still in the city. All transportation and major roadways are federal property, and we can monitor those with facial recognition software. We catch most felons very quickly. The fact that original Holly has eluded us indicates that she was well-prepared and connected when she ran. And? This entire conversation put me on edge. I think I knew what was coming next. But a PR in pursuit of her original can go in without problems because a warrant has already been issued, allowing you to trespass in order to accomplish your hunt. And if I happen to discover other things, well. Skylar's face returned to my vision, and he shrugged. Well, if you need to call for backup, I'd be happy to assist. My stomach twisted at the thought. It seemed too convoluted that they would have murdered Jonathan and then framed my original in order to create me so that I could go into this place that Skylar couldn't. And yet, I knew I hadn't killed Jonathan. So I had to prove that, and I still had no real idea of where to find my original. Is there anywhere I can go to research? I mean, besides a library or something? Yeah. Skylar smirked. In the pamphlet? An involuntary laugh escaped me. I'm going to kill you if you say that again. Wouldn't be the first time someone tried. Smiling, he looked down and to the left. You've got a small bank account for expenses. I recommend finding a hotel and using that as your base of operations after your renewal is finished. Thanks. I'll do that. The idea of having a shower and calling room service had a strikingly large amount of appeal. After Skylar signed off, I spent the rest of the time in the renewal booth while my leg was being repaired, looking over the files that I'd found while at our apartment. Nothing looked familiar or jogged a memory or gave me any clue beyond the fact that my original apparently had a relationship with the people who kidnapped me. None of this made sense. I was also exhausted and spinning my wheels. Rolling out of the renewal couch, I was happy to see that my clothes had been repaired and cleaned while I lay there. It would make it easier to get a hotel room if I didn't look like a gunshot victim. Assuming that the clerk could have even seen the bloodstains, the thought that people were wandering around soaked in blood but themed out almost made me start laughing hysterically. I really needed to rest. I had not slept the night before and then had to deal with the second attack this morning. I headed for Europa Hotel and actually walked two streets before stopping myself. I was an idiot. I was naturally heading to one that Jonathan and I had spent a getaway weekend at. But of course, my original would know where that was. If the people she was working with weren't determined to kill me, that might have been an okay thing. As it was, I needed to avoid my original until we could meet on my terms. I needed to randomize where I was staying to keep my original from predicting my choice. Reaching into the pocket of my trousers, I pulled out the pair of dice I'd picked up. Shaking the ruby cubes in my cupped fists, I pretended that Jonathan blew on them for luck. 
Luck be a lady tonight. I crouched on the sidewalk and threw them across the pristine white cement. They bumped and caught and settled. Six. Nodding, I scooped them up and opened a wireframe AR display for hotels. The bare text lacked any theming, but it worked for my purposes. I scrolled through until I got to the sixth hotel, the depot. It catered to train travel enthusiasts. It wasn't my usual cup of tea. I leaned toward architecture that could host a yoga retreat instead of a cozy mystery. Whatever happened, my original would not expect to find me there. One less chance of ambush, but only one less. The hotel that my pair of dice sent me to was a nondescript box on a nondescript block. With theming on, the depot probably had train motifs as a default and maybe vaulted the low ceilings into something grander. As it was, the lobby felt squat and claustrophobically dark. Besides being a random location, it turned out to have two things going for it. One was that my room had real windows looking out onto the street. The second, was the in-room fabricator. I spent the afternoon curled up by the window with an AR screen and the antique gun on the arm of my chair. It had two bullets left in the chamber. I had no idea where to get more. And yes, I tried printing them, but the in-room fabricator politely let me know that they were a prohibited item. In fact, it wouldn't let me print anything that it thought could be lethal. Toy crossbow? Totally okay. Real crossbow? Totally not. I wasn't happy about that. Given that one of the women who attacked me this morning wasn't a checkout, I wanted more options. I hadn't told Skylar that I'd kept the revolver, but I figured he'd know that I had it once he trawled my memories. My stomach turned again at the thought of him going over my memories, and my hand drifted toward the gun. I shuddered and clenched my fist before I could pick up the comforting weight those were someone else's instincts. My instinct was problem solving. In many ways, this wasn't that different from planning a party. It was all about lists and research and planning. As near as I could figure, after hours of consideration, Jonathan's work for the government as a neuroengineer meant he'd had information Icon wanted. What information? I didn't know but he had an intimate understanding of how the renewal stations worked, and they clearly wanted that technology. But then why kill him, since that would take any knowledge? Wait, Zoba had said that they could pull information out of my dead brain. Then why hit him in the head? I swallowed, remembering the fibers sticking to the base of the statue. Why kill him in a way that would damage the brain? And then, whoever had done that had... What? Framed my original, causing her to run to Icon. For that to be the case, it would also mean that whoever framed her had enough influence to manipulate records or to buy off the coroner at a minimum. Was the government involved? Drumming my fingers on the edge of my chair, I stared out the window at the pristine, blank white street. Below me, people went about their day without any awareness of the lies surrounding them what I wouldn't give to go back to not knowing. The word liar written in blood on a wood floor. I wiped my hand over my face. Block letters. It could have been anyone's handwriting. 
If I could just figure out who, then I could prove that my original was innocent. And then, if my original was innocent, would the government have any reason to keep me alive? This me, the me sitting in this chair and staring out this window. What was the legal process for dealing with a clone when the original was still alive? It was probably in Skylar's damn pamphlet. And ultimately, it didn't matter. Because regardless of which me we were talking about, I would rather die than let Jonathan's killers go free. I guess that was where my rating of 83% likely to succeed came in. My original had run to Icon, which suggested that she knew something about the murder that made her afraid of the government. Since I was a created thing, specifically designed to kill my original, it was no wonder that she had asked Icon to kidnap me so she could control the encounter. I had the same instinct. I tapped the AR screen and pulled up the clock. 5.15. I'd finished my renewal at about 10.30 this morning, which meant that I could give myself about 12 hours before nanite depletion became a problem. Gnawing my lip, I dragged the list I'd made back to the top of the AR screen. Of all the places that Jonathan and I had an emotional connection to, only one was entirely on private property, the Jolly Racer nightclub. We'd had our first real date there. My original would probably expect me to go, but I wouldn't just walk in unprepared. I could work to control that situation. My original could anticipate that I'd show up, but she didn't have my fancy superpowers. The first two encounters had been on Icon's terms. This would be on mine. As I walked into the Jolly Racer, I was relying on its default theme to let me blend in with the other checked-in guests. For any Icon members, I was hoping that my hair and clothing would make them look past me. I had a pretty simple plan. Simple, huh? What I wanted to do was separate one of them from the others and see if I could get some answers. Part of me wanted to use force. I had a hard time arguing that part down, even if it came from someone else. First, I had to find them, and that meant knowingly walking into a trap. But I didn't have to be stupid about it. Disguising yourself in a world where everyone uses themes is at once easy and really hard. The easy part is that when I'd had full nanites, I could just think about looking different and I would present that way. Any checked-in citizen could view me with my preferred presentation, the polite choice, or they could edit their perception of me to fit with however they wanted to view the world. The same way that I could go to the Jolly Racer nightclub and see its default theme with rustic brick and artfully placed graffiti, or override it with my perception choices. I had always liked the Jolly Racer with a touch quieter music and a smidge more light than the default theme. Mostly, I hadn't needed to think about it because the system had learned my preferences over a lifetime of interactions. Which brought us to the hard part. During all the little nanite transactions that make up our world, our computer systems are constantly doing little handshakes and making decisions based on our preferences. It meant that a checked-in citizen's software would identify you correctly every time, no matter what theme or skin you were presenting with. But when I was trying to disguise myself to people who were checked out, they didn't have nanites to identify me. This meant that I could use physical disguises. 
I discovered that while I couldn't print weapons, I could print wigs. My head now sported a bob, the same purple as Zoba Moss's streak. My small government-issued bank account also helped me to fabricate bulletproof clothing, which would do squat for energy weapons, but would keep any projectiles out of my flesh. As importantly, it was bulky, which changed the shape of my body and hid the weapons I carried. All of that effort, and then once I was in, I nearly blew my own cover, because the oddness stopped me for a heartbeat before I remembered to keep walking. I'd known that the walls would probably be white. I hadn't expected the music to be missing as well. People in generic white clothes gyrated on the dance floor, shouting at each other over music that I couldn't hear. Swallowing, I brushed against the first person I could. The lights dimmed, bare brick with graffiti blossomed around us. From the giant speaker rack at the stage, the swirling funk of plush Cenobite's latest single filled the air. Blue and red lights pulsed in time with the bass line. I sank into the beat and used the act of dancing to work my way across the floor, looking for anyone who was out of place. Brushing against a lanky woman shifted the scene. Plush Cenobite still blared, but with the vocals a little brighter. The walls shifted to posters instead of graffiti, and the lights didn't pulse, but a mirror ball spun overhead. I spun and gyrated, using the motion to scope the room and keep my face constantly obscured by my flying purple hair. There, the movement caught my eye first. A man dancing off the beat. I say dancing. He was swaying from one foot to the other near an exit, and his arm was in a sling. I dipped under the arm of a portly beauty with a mole on his right cheek, and the room morphed again to be midnight blue with starlight dappling the ceiling. Plush Cenobite became a jazz band on the stage, but the beat stayed constant. I blew the beauty a kiss and used that movement to study the offbeat man. The sling would have been a dead giveaway that he was a checkout, even if I hadn't recognized him. It was Carl Newton, former lab tech with a nasal voice and a desire to see me dead. Swell. Spinning, I followed his eyeline and spotted Zoba Moss hanging out on the stairs to the second level. They weren't pretending to dance, but nursed a drink while talking with a woman I didn't know. I stared as long as I could so that Skylar would be able to ID her, but had to keep moving. I backed up, dancing, against another man, and the default theme returned with all the pulsing lights I remembered. Two people here that I knew. The woman on the stairs might be with Icon, or might be Cover. I didn't see anyone else out of place, but there were also members of their team that weren't here. Andy Blackwell, the woman whose trachea I crushed, and Frederic Gorski, the sniper, weren't there. No, wait, I was smarter than that. I didn't see them, but I had to assume that they were around somewhere. Carl, with his sling, seemed like the weak link, but too obviously so. I danced across the floor, trying to close the distance between us, and passed against someone who had the color saturation turned up on everything. The reds were so red they made my teeth hurt. I bumped into the next person I could, just to clear that theme from my cortex. The room stayed exactly the same. Thank God plush Cenobite is infectious, and I kept moving to my memory of the beat. 
I danced three steps past the person before I realized that their theme hadn't asserted itself because they were a checkout. Hair flying, I spun and grabbed a look at them. A man with acne scars on his dark cheeks and a single gold earring. No one I recognized from the previous attack. He was a better dancer than Carl and moved with the beat, but when the chorus came around, he missed the pause in the rhythm that everyone else in the room responded to. Gold Earring was definitely a checkout. But was he with Icon? It seemed likely. He was in the part of the room that I would move to if I wanted to establish the four points of a diamond for a fire team. With Carl and Zoba, that meant the fourth member was probably... I threw my head back, squinting through the full saturation, and there, on the balcony, Gorski, the sniper, was scanning the room while leaning against a column. Damn it. If I tried to take anyone else down, she'd shoot me. I could take her down, but I'd have to go by Zoba on the stairs to get to her. Slipping off the floor, I headed to the bar. I had some weaponry on me, but a little more camouflage wouldn't hurt. Using the mirror behind the bar to keep an eye on Zoba, I leaned one elbow on the bar and shouted over the blaring music. A Jack and Ginger, please. The bartender shouted back. Do you want lime with that? As she did, the last theme faded, taking the mirror with it and leaving the room sterile and white again. Keep pretending, Holly, until you can touch someone else. Yes. My voice shocked me without music to mask it. I was shouting over music that only existed in theme. Anyone who knew my voice? Something hard pressed against my back, and not even printed Kevlar would let me pretend that it was anything except a gun. A nasal voice whispered in my ear, Step away from the bar, and we can keep this civil. Carl. If it had been anyone other than him, I might have done that, but his wounded arm offered me an opportunity. I don't get to have my drink? I said, step away. Suit yourself. I relaxed and let another set of instincts take over. My body shrugged, masking a shift of my weight. It was easy to bring my elbow up and into his jaw, spinning past him so that when the gun went off, I wasn't there. But I retained his arm. He fired into the crowd, energy pulses evaporating like smoke. I swept a leg under him, knocking him down, and wrested the gun away. He tried to roll away. I shot him. That energy pulse didn't evaporate, and he slumped, paralyzed. I dove away, rolling to check Gorski. She produced a rifle from below the railing, aiming it toward me. I scrambled behind a table and glanced to make sure that Carl was still down. He was in a crumpled heap on the floor. A man tripped over him and did a double take, bending down to check. Hey! His voice was shockingly loud without the music. Got someone who passed out here! Passed out, or paralyzed. The idiot should have locked the gun to his fingerprint, but maybe Icon members couldn't because they had to trade weapons too quickly. Besides the guy who tripped, no one else noticed what was happening. Around us, people kept dancing. They had no idea that someone was trying to kill me. Why the heck would someone's theme edit out danger? It seemed like knowing that there was a gunman would be a useful thing. Except, of course, if the shooter were using energy pulse weapons that couldn't harm checked-in citizens. Checked-out citizens would be able to see and respond. No one else would have to have their day disrupted. 
which handily meant that they weren't clearing the dance floor, so I could use them for cover. Staying low, I looked for Zoba. The woman Zoba had been talking to on the stairs was still there and looking vaguely bored, but Zoba was coming down the stairs, two at a time, with their gun drawn. They shouted over their shoulder at Gorski, Take the shot! I guess they weren't interested in subtlety this time. Straightening, I took a shot at them. A dancer brushed against me, and the entire nightclub morphed to moody lighting and the bright guitar line of knockoff Sibian. Anything else that Zoba said was gone under the thumping music. Gorski lay down fire across the dance floor, energy pulses evaporating into smoke around me. I ducked, nearly getting kneed in the face by an enthusiastic dancer. Dancer, where was Gold Earring Man? There. He was making his way across the dance floor to me. The dancers flowed around him like he was just another patron. They either didn't see him, or their theme made him blend in with the scene. I didn't pretend to dance this time. Sliding around a lanky blonde, I aimed at Gold Earring Man and fired. The gold pulse slid through the space between us, evaporating into a haze when it brushed against a checked-in dancer. Gold Earring ducked as I aimed again, and there were too many gyrating bodies between us. Another one bumped into me, and the entire nightclub filled with a dry ice haze. I squinted past it, trying to get a line on Gold Earring Man. To my left, Zoba slipped into the crowd. I tracked them while I kept trying to take out Goldie. Above us, Gorski laid down more fire, and I dropped down into the crowd. Amid the legs of the club-goers, it was impossible to avoid brushing against someone. The club strobed through different scenarios almost in time with the music. Grimacing, I worked my way in a crouch toward the last place I'd seen. There. Legs that were not dancing, but just walking. I didn't bother standing. I just shot him in the knee. The energy pulse hit him and spread golden numbness up and down his leg. His knee buckled, pitching him toward me. I shifted to retarget, but a dancer slammed into me. I dropped my knees. The band became a blues band again, still blaring knockoff Sibian. A hand grabbed my gun arm. Nothing in the nightclub changed. Surging up, I drove my shoulder toward Zoba's midriff. They spun, using my momentum to turn me, and the next thing I knew, I was slamming onto the floor. With my free hand, I grabbed them, yanking them down to the floor with me. Spinning, kicking, punching, we rolled across the dance floor. The nightclub flashed through scenarios every time we bumped against someone. The physical contact made some people stop dancing, but others just moved out of the way, as if we weren't fighting at their feet. Zoba slammed their forehead into mine. Red and white exploded like a new theme across the inside of my skull. I blinked and planted my foot, twisting to throw them off of me. Flowing up and over, I landed on them, one arm across their throat, the other with the antique revolver at their temple. Zoba froze. Their gaze flicked to the side as if they could see the gun. Who sent you? The last theme began to fade from my vision. You did. I mean, who sent you after my original? I rose onto my knees so that more weight came down on my arm. There's no way I found you on my own. Your original came to us for help. Zoba had their hands out and spread, blood smeared across the knuckles of one. I have a voice recording for you, from her right pocket. You could have just said that in the beginning. Zoba snorted. 
You're a provisional replica. We know what you're designed to do. My stomach twisted at that. They weren't wrong. If I let you... Someone grabbed my shoulders and hauled me up as the nightclub's default theme deepened around me. Enough! No fighting in the club! Two men, themed like heavy bruisers, held my arms pinned behind my back. Another pair had hauled Zoba to their feet opposite me. I tried to throw them off. That was a tactical error because all it got me was a zap from a para-ray. I was getting really tired of getting knocked out. I woke up in an unthemed office. One of the bruisers sat opposite me, and apparently his bulk was not a theme. He looked up from an actual paper comic book. Yo, you're awake. How long? My voice slurred with the remnants of the para-ray. A page. He held up the comic book. We just put you down in the chair. Zoba must still be out there. I planted my feet and pushed myself out of the chair. Maybe I could catch up to them, but Bruiser Boy stood as well. Uh Uh-uh. He crossed his arms and stood in front of the door. No fighting. That's not jolly, and the jolly racer is jolly. Great. Tautology aside, I promised to head straight out. Because the Icon folks had to be on the move. Even if the Bruisers were holding Zoba here, the rest of the Icon team had to be on the run. Your friends are already gone. I could take him. He'd left me at a desk with a tablet and his throat was just right there. I could have him on the ground before... I closed my eyes as if I could seal those thoughts off. They are not my friends. Well, they left something for you. His massive shoulders were still partway through a shrug when I opened my eyes. And it's better if you say that you're friends because then it's just roughhousing, and that's period correct. Was everyone who was checked in this shallow? I wet my lips. Great, noted. Thanks. You want it? He fished in his pocket and pulled out a digital recorder. They said you'd want it. I nodded, biting my tongue, and held out my hand. The bruiser dropped the recorder into my hand, and it was still warm with body heat. Can I listen in here? He shrugged. Go ahead. I stared at him and wanted to bite through his carotid. Privately? He shrugged again and turned to open the door. Knock yourself out. Wait, I already did that. (laughs) I did not offer a pity laugh, although I did consider a mercy killing. Thank you. When he had shut the door, I sank back down into the chair and put the recorder on the table in front of me, Letting out a quick breath, I hit play. Hello, me. My voice sounded a little too high and nasal, but it was definitely mine. You probably think we've been framed, that I've been kidnapped. It's what I would have assumed until all the lies started shredding around me. I'm going to try to save us both a world of hurt by telling you a hard thing now. I was not framed. I killed him. I killed him. My own voice kept echoing those words in my brain, and I would have given a lot to unhear the recording. I wanted there to be a hidden message or a sign of coercion. I shoved the recorder into my pocket and left the nightclub. 
My goddamned pre-programmed instincts made me go up to the roof, just in case the Icon team had left a lookout. Honestly, I was hoping they had. I wanted to punch someone. I couldn't even tell where that urge came from. I thought I wasn't a violent person. I killed him. Have I just never been pushed before? The roof was clear. As a bonus, the building was part of a long row of businesses that stretched down to the end of the block. Even up here, everything was a featureless white, ready for theming. I went over the low balustrade to the next building, and the next, and the next, and the entire time my brain kept saying, I killed him. Even if I accepted that as fact, fighting the urge to sob, I stopped in the middle of a roof and sank down to a crouch, burying my fingers in my hair. Except for the why of it, if I thought of my original as someone else entirely, then the casual chain of guilt to running to Icon made a whole lot more sense than the convoluted conspiracy theories I was coming up with. I had killed Jonathan. Why? I couldn't catch my breath. Something had happened in that gap in my memory. There had to be something. I tried to imagine what Jonathan would do that would make me kill him. My chest hurt. Snot filled my nose and I gagged on my own sobs. What had happened? What had gone so wrong in my brain that I had killed him and, oh God, carved him? Because whatever had happened, I could not imagine Jonathan doing something worth murder. And mutilation? I shuddered. Sure, it probably wasn't premeditated, but even there, we'd had maybe two fights. I couldn't imagine us coming to blows at all. Had he cheated on me? That would disappoint me that he hadn't trusted me enough to be open. I would feel betrayed, yes. But violence? Even if it were in his nature to cheat on me, I couldn't imagine myself striking him. Which left me with two basic choices. Either the recording was part of a giant conspiracy to make me think that I had killed my husband, and the Icon agents were, in fact, actors hired by the government to cement this so that they could track my original down for reasons. Or the recording was real, and something unimaginable had happened. Hell, maybe I'd hit my head in that gap, and a traumatic brain injury had gone uncorrected. Maybe I had a concussion and had lost impulse control— it had happened to my Aunt Sydney. Although, all she did was buy an ungodly amount of yogurt and go swimming naked in it. I didn't quite laugh at the memory, but I did sniffle and wipe my nose on my sleeve. The only way I was going to get answers was to talk to my original. If she really had killed Jonathan... My fists tightened and rage filled me to the point of sweating... I couldn't imagine my former self being capable of violence, but this version of me definitely was. If she had really killed Jonathan, then I would do what I was made for. I would hunt her down and kill her. Wait, wait. The recording could be designed to make me lose control. This could very well be a trap. So fine, hunt her down carefully. And then, before I killed her... I would make her tell me what had happened. To my face. In person. Because the government might have created me. But I was my own goddamned person. Day two. Night. 
I wound up in a bar because getting drunk seemed like a reasonable response to the day. The happy accident caught my eye because they had an actual neon open sign hanging in the window. The interior was easily themable neutral white, except for a substantial physical collection of landscape paintings on the walls. A booth in the back corner had a good vantage to observe the room, and I could keep an eye on the entrances and exits. Lovely that combat strategy was now a driving factor in where I wanted to sit. I had my second Manhattan in front of me, and because I wasn't a complete idiot, had ordered it on the rocks so that the water leached into the alcohol. I wanted to get drunk, yes, but people wanted to kill me, so... Two drinks. With ice. I'd borrowed some paper and a pencil from the bartender, and when his hand brushed mine, for a few moments I got to see the happy accident in all its vintage-themed glory, with neon and a long, polished wood bar. It was a well-constructed theme, with just enough smoke in the air to give it a blue haze, but not so much that it felt like a fog machine had malfunctioned. By the time I'd gotten to my table, it was plain white again. The drink was real, at least. I took a sip and let the dark, caramelized bitterness roll across my palate. Was my original ordering the same drink someplace else? Probably. It was our go-to. How was I supposed to outthink myself? Sure, I had been loaded with all sorts of combat skills, but so far that hadn't been enough. How was I supposed to trap someone who would think of the same traps? In turn, how would I escape the traps she laid for me? Clearly, there was some trick to it, or the government wouldn't have gone to the lengths they had to create me. Maybe Skylar's pamphlet had offered helpful suggestions on outsmarting yourself. I scrubbed my face with my hand and stared at the blank sheet of paper. All right. So, my original went to Icon for help. Never mind the question of how I had known who they were or how to contact them. I clearly had somehow known that and gone there. Maybe something from Jonathan's files? Or had my original just run to the checkout slum and then... Heck, maybe there was a club. Whatever the route, I still didn't think I would have trusted them implicitly, though. Zoba had mentioned a bio-locked key to me. I wet my lips, thinking. So what if... What if after my last renewal, I learned something? Shit. Maybe Jonathan had been working with them? Skylar had said that they couldn't find any connection between him and Preston, but Jonathan had done so much research on checkouts. The room went cold and then hot again. I shook my head and shoved the idea to the side. I could only handle so much right now. Let's say I learned something, and it was something Icon wanted. I stored the information and bio-locked it. So now, if she didn't unlock whatever it was for them, then I was their backup which meant two things. The first was that they had the same ticking clock that I did because they needed me to be alive to unlock things. The moment my original unlocked whatever it was, I became useless. But the fact that she hadn't unlocked it for them yet was interesting. Given their force, it implied that they didn't know where she was. It also implied that she probably didn't trust them. Maybe she'd run to them and then realized that they were a terrorist organization. I leaned back in the booth and stared at the white acoustic tile ceiling. What would I do if I were trying to hide? Oh, 
I sat up and fished in my pockets to pull out the dice. I would do exactly what I had done. I would try to randomize my actions so they couldn't be anticipated. I rolled the dice across the table, and they came up with a five and a two. Seven. I couldn't anticipate her actions, but I could recreate the situation of the randomization of dice. Six-sided dice could roll two through twelve. So, if I made a list of eleven possible actions, it would at least give me a basis to start. What were all the ways in which one could hide from the government? I skipped go to friends because that was a sure way to get caught, and I'm pretty sure that I knew that even before being turned into a PR killing machine. My list had some smart things, like change name, and some stupid things, like hide under a rock. If my original used dice to randomize in the same way I was, she would have needed a list of choices to roll from. So I narrowed it down to 11 that seemed like the best options, and then put those into an order that felt... natural. One of the things we learned when playing D&D was that on a pair of six-sided dice, certain numbers show up more commonly than others, with seven being the most common, followed by six and eight. In the middle of my list of ways to hide was get a hotel room, and number six was change name. That prompted a second list of possible aliases that I would have used on the run. Three hours until nanite depletion. The countdown timer glowed in the lower left corner of my vision. I rolled my eyes, and it stayed with me. Well, crap. I downed the rest of my Manhattan. If I were checking into a renewal station, the nanites could sober me up. And while they did that, Skylar could run some checks for me. I had a list of names for him. I sank onto the white couch of the renewal station and watched the counter blink out. The muscles in my back relaxed as the nanites got to work repairing damage. Without my consent, the system placed a call again. I sighed, waiting for Skylar as my head started to clear. At least this time I knew to expect to see him. The connecting tone took longer than usual, as in I had enough time to start to worry that he wasn't going to answer. The muscles in the back of my neck tightened, and I opened my eyes, scoping the renewal booth automatically. I'd cleared it and the surrounding area before I came in, but conditions could change. Skylar appeared, yawning. Sorry, think we can shift your renewal time back to business hours? Who installed the timer? He grimaced. It's a pain in the ass, I'll grant that. Pointing a finger at me like a gun, he said, This isn't in the pamphlet, but it's a useful hack. The system counts down 24 hours from your last renewal, so if you do two in a day, you can shift the next time. Ah. And that's why this one was in the wee hours of the morning, because of the attack at my apartment. And since I went in three hours earlier than actual depletion, it had already shifted everything back. You'd think they would set it at 28 hours or something. Scientists. He shrugged and yawned again. Do you need me, or are you just doing a renewal? Actually, if I give you a list of names, can you check hotel registries? He sat up and focused a little. You have something? And yes, I can do that. Thanks. And I maybe had an idea. Maybe. Give me the list. I opened my eyes and held the piece of paper in front of them. Hope you don't mind going old school. 
Ooh, paper. Always a good sign. Statistically? Statistically speaking, PRs who shift to working things out on paper have a higher success rate by about 15%. He sighed and compressed his lips with an expression that almost looked sad. It usually means that they've stopped trying to prove their original's innocence. I'm sorry. I shut my eyes, but he was still there. Skylar looked away from the display and fiddled with something off screen, which was as much privacy as he could give me. Privacy. All the privacy laws in the world couldn't change the fact that he was right. I had stopped trying to prove that I was innocent and just wanted to understand now. And, of course, where I fit into privacy laws meant that he would get to watch my moment of revelation in all its snot-filled glory. I dragged my eyes open again. So these names. Got it. I'll get to work on these. I lowered the page. I was worried that privacy laws would stop you or something. No, this is just legwork. We call the hotels, ask for these people. The clerk at the front desk either says they are registered or they aren't. He grinned, knife blade nose curving down. This is what interns are for. I gaped at him for a minute as the hair on the back of my neck stood up with an unsettling realization. So anyone can do this? I, I may need you to pick a different hotel and give me an assumed name. And if you tell me that this is recommended practice in the fucking pamphlet, it's not. Skylar tugged at his ear and looked down and to the left as if he was working on something. Most PRs don't wind up being hunted back, but then most aren't connected to global terrorist organizations. Why is she? That's what I don't understand. I'm not trying to be difficult or prove my innocence. It would just help. Skylar spread his hands. You're the only one who can tell us that. Are you sure Jonathan wasn't connected to Icon or anything about his work? Based on his research, it seems likely. But how or why, I don't know. And the only one who does is your original. Skylar sighed again and looked off to the side. Okay, I booked you at the Heathman. Warning, it's a historic landmark hotel, so the amenities are very... vintage, shall we say. On the couch, I shrugged and pulled up a map to see where it was. In Old Town, nothing closer? Yeah, but this one is a historic landmark, so it's public property. The lobby and the corridors. I still can't watch the rooms, but at least I can make sure you sleep safely. Skylar, that's almost sweet and creepy. My M.O., he grinned. Besides, I can't have valuable government property damaged. Jerk. Also my M.O. You're registered as Lena Harlow. Nice name. My great-grandma. He stifled another yawn. Anything else I can do? I shook my head. Thank you. When he signed off, I still had time to wait for the nanites to do their work, so I pulled up another one of Jonathan's speeches to the Organisation Technologique Internationale, in this one, he was on a large stage in a spotlight with slides and screens surrounding him as he spoke. The logo of OTI floated above the stage with a gentle golden glow. Jonathan wore his long silk divided skirt of deep purple dubioni and a starched tuxedo shirt. 
My husband had dusted his cheeks with gold and styled his hair to be an artful tangle over his broad, tan forehead. I remembered the day he left to do this speech. None of his appearance was themed. The divided skirts... Actually, I could be wrong about that. The color might be themed, but the cut of the garment and the fabric band that wrapped and tied them into place was very real because I helped him put them on, and later I helped him take them off. Lying on my back in an unthemed renewal station, I listened to Jonathan talk while my heart broke all over again. The psychology of checkouts. It's a simple phrase, but so is how are you and I'm fine. These can be social noises or areas of deep concern. Likewise, when I introduce a talk as the psychology of checkouts, I might be introducing a matter of scientific curiosity or an area of deep concern. He gestured, and one of the slides changed to a bar graph labeled nanite deployment, with the bars trending higher each year. I am here to suggest to you that it is an area of deep concern. When nanites and 3D printing were introduced, pundits predicted that they would destroy society. Spoilers, they didn't. He paused while the audience laughed, and then he changed the screen to another bar graph that read, Suicides, and the laughter cut off. Now, correlation is not causation, and we know that, but the structure of our society has shifted. Destroyed? No. But it has definitely been upended and shaken about. Where we were once driven by careers or the pressing need to feed and shelter ourselves, now we have no needs— And for some people, we have no purpose. We have no reason to exist. Our lives are without meaning. He swiped the air again, and a new graph showed checkouts also trending upward. I propose that if we do not understand the psychology of checkouts, we fundamentally cannot understand the nature of our own society. It is easy to dismiss them as living outside polite society, but that is a comforting fiction. They are part of our society. Tonight, through a series of first-hand accounts, I'm going to talk about the psychology and the society of checkouts. He swiped the air again, and beneath the title Jane Doe, an old white woman's face appeared above the stage behind him. My heart stopped, and I froze the replay as her image drew breath to speak, Fine wrinkles puckered her lips and drew paths from the corner of her eyes. A large liver spot rested on one temple. She had silver hair braided into a crown around her head. I'd met her. She lived in the checkout slums that Skylar wanted me to raid. How the hell had Jonathan met her? I started the replay again, and her breath resumed, continuing into speech. Checking out was a slow process, for me at any rate. I'm old enough that my parents were born before the nanites, and they had had jobs. My mother, she became unmoored. She wasn't a person who took well to leisure, and at a certain point she just walked away. She moved to North Korea, which was slow to join the global compact, and spent her days working as a house cleaner, the sort of menial labor that robots were supposed to have done away with. Her smile was wistful. She was happier than she had ever been with us, but I didn't get it. I tried to stave off a similar ennui by becoming more involved in the community, but ultimately, 
It wasn't just a lack of purpose, it was a lack of risk. We're built to survive danger and uncertainty. Without those, we don't flourish. I stopped drawing the universal basic income. I spent my days smoking and working in a community garden. Small risks. Possibly I'll develop cancer. I think about that every time I light up. The community garden is soothing, but also if I don't grow enough, I don't eat. The effort to have enough gives me a sense of purpose, but more so because there is a risk. How was going hungry healthy? And how had Jonathan known her to record that interview? The fact that she lived in the slums that Skylar wanted me to raid and had known Jonathan suggested a connection. Or maybe I just wanted there to be something else going on, some lead. I needed to talk to her. Ugh, the urge was really strong to get out of the renewal chamber and go straight to the commons, but I would be in unfamiliar territory, and according to Skylar, enemy territory. I wanted to talk to Jane Doe, but I also needed to be smart. As much as I wanted to know about the connection between her and Jonathan, my actual mandate was to find my original. Looking for Jane Doe and Icon was a side quest that might drag me farther away from my goal. The smart thing was to let Skylar do his search through the various hotels, looking for my original's potential aliases, and wait until I had a solid plan of finding her rather than going to the checkout slums. So instead, I went to the hotel that Skylar had booked for me and got something that resembled a night of sleep. The hotel itself fell into a strange, uncanny valley for me because it looked like the 1927 landmark that it was, but pretty much nothing was theme-ready except the bed linens. Everything else, from the carpet to the chandeliers, was vintage and real. It was weird. On the one hand, it felt comfortable to have wallpaper instead of blank white walls. On the other hand, part of my brain kept noticing small details, like the spotlessly shined brass doorknobs, and insisting that it looked wrong. I think it was just because of how squeaky clean everything was. Robots crept silently through the halls, cleaning, polishing, and mending as they went. Everything gleamed. A place like this should have had a sepia theme, though, to emphasize its age. But the beds were comfy, and I was exhausted. So aside from one nightmare, I slept well. Ish. Over a room service breakfast, I looked at my ways that my original might have tried to hide. If she was rolling dice, there was no telling which she would have tried first. I kept waffling over which one to do. Start at the top and work my way down, go to the end, or... Heck, I could stare at the list all day and not come up with anything concrete, so I did what my original had done. I rolled the dice. Number five, camping. I sighed, feeling like Skylar as I did so. Camping. While Jonathan loved camping, I was indifferent at best to it. I didn't hate it, but I'd rather stay in a nice yurt than in a bedroll on the ground. In many ways, this maybe made it a prime candidate, because I didn't hate it enough for it to stand out or like it enough to be able to rule it out as a favorite and therefore obvious. Also, there was a global forest reserve just off the Sunset Highway. Washington Park, with over a hundred miles of trails carved out from the urban sprawl. 
It had easy access for someone who needed to stay off-grid, but not a lot of people went there, so it seemed like it would be easy to avoid being spotted. Once you got away from the light rail station, it wasn't video monitored. In other words, a good potential. It's the sort of thing that I would look for if I were trying to hide. Skylar had said that my original was probably still in the city, and recent events seemed to confirm that. Right. Time to print a different wig, maybe a fake nose, and see if I could find myself in the woods. As soon as I arrived, I knew that my original was not there. When I first got out of the maglev train at the transit station, I thought that maybe there was a festival happening or something. The forest was packed with people. And I say forest as if that's what it was. Sure, there were trees, many of them were even real, but without theming, I could see it for what it must have always been, a big, forest-shaped theme park. I followed the flow of passengers along a boardwalk bordered by artificial turf. Manicured trees lined the boardwalk, and the space between them had been mowed to stubble, without any pesky underbrush to get tangled in. I tilted my head, looking for the waterfall that used to be visible through the trees, and bumped into a camper who had stopped on the boardwalk. Sorry. His theme washed over me. Almost everyone else vanished. It was as if a bomb had gone off and wiped 95% of the population away. The trees spread their branches over us, and birdsong filtered through the leaves. Somewhere in the distance, I could hear the waterfall where Jonathan and I had... We thought we were alone in a sacred space. It's fine. I staggered away from him, covering my hand before I vomited with horror. When we went camping, it was because Jonathan needed to get away from people, to hide. We would lie in our tent, staring up at the shadows of leaves on the fabric and listen to the quiet of nature. He was the reason that I was ambivalent about camping, instead of simply tolerating it, because my sweet husband relaxed utterly when he was in nature, alone, with just me and the sound of our breath. As the theme faded around me, the dense mass of people came back into focus. There was no festival. These were just people, camping, all of them thinking that they were alone. The theme I'd seen had carefully left a path through the woods which avoided the other campsites and cloaked them in thickets and rocks and trees. Everyone here thought that they were the only ones clever enough to try to get away from it all. And obviously the government encouraged that by erasing most everyone else. How did they maintain this illusion? It seemed as though people would bump against one another on the boardwalk the way I had done to the other camper. I turned on the boardwalk to the nearest person who seemed oblivious to me. I reached out and brushed their sleeve with the tips of my fingers. The forest re-emerged around me. I stood on a narrow path that wove through the trees. Only the person I'd brushed walked on it. Everyone else had vanished among trees or shrubs. Somewhere, a program was working to keep people walking only on the path it wanted them on, only showing them the few other people on the path. As the forest faded away, I saw tents emerge from the dense underbrush designed to keep people from walking into them. A couple lay on the ground by their tent, completely naked, and made love while an army of strangers walked a few meters away. That had been us, 
I don't know how many times we had... I pressed my hand over my mouth. I wasn't going to go look at the waterfall. It was probably a kiddie pool with a water slide. The world I lived in, this was it. Processed and fake. Even if I killed my original, I'd never be able to go back to my old life. Why would they send me out without theming, knowing that this unveiling would happen, that this liar drawn in blood on a hardwood floor? I shut my eyes and drew in a shuddering breath. Had I realized this? Had my original, for God knows what reason, turned off her theming and seen this and snapped? In that moment, it felt possible. But why take it out on Jonathan? There was nothing for me here. I turned to go back and saw people I knew, Pradeep Bryant and Jenny May Barker. Pradeep usually had exquisite fashion sense and today was dressed in a white sack. He held Jenny May's hand and I smiled. I hadn't known they were a thing now. She did the most amazing carvings of dragon fruit, including one where it looked like a spotted owl was nested inside the shell. I lifted a hand and waved. I knew better. I should have known better. They kept walking as if I didn't exist. And of course, to them, I didn't. You have to come with me. Please, Dandy is doing the most splendid things with carrots. I'm sure that is true, but my chess club meets that night. But they are using foamed carrot. The sculpture only lasts for maybe 15 minutes. It's so ephemeral. She hitched her backpack higher and walked in a circle around me, looking toward me. These trees, I can't get over how amazing they are. I know, Pradeep sighed, tilting his head back. Why doesn't everyone come here? I was able to find a seat on the maglev back into Old Town. Sitting there in the pristine white tube, surrounded by pristine white clothing, I wanted to pull out my pulse gun and start shooting. It wouldn't matter. Their themes would tune me out, and the energy pulses would convert to harmless dust on contact. None of this mattered. An incoming call pinged in my ear. I yelped, half jumping out of my seat. No one noticed. Yay for themes. My phone hadn't rung at all since I woke up as a PR. I had honestly assumed that it had been stripped with the rest of my theming. Heart hammering, I didn't even have time to accept the call before it connected without my consent. Skylar's head and shoulders appeared in my field of vision as if he were just opposite me in the maglev. Holly. Good call on the pseudonyms. My intern just found Dodd Anderson registered at the Regal Tower. I sat forward in my seat, as if that would get me closer to him. Do you have her? Nope. The room was empty except for a voice recorder and a twenty-sided die. Oh. I sagged back against my seat. Without asking, I knew that the die was ruby red and a match to my pair of six-sided ones. What was on the recording? Don't know. The voice recorder is biometrically locked. Skylar smirked and tilted his head. I'm not usually a betting man, but I'll bet you I know who it's locked to. I need you to come in. Surprising no one, the government building where Skylar worked was plain and white. 
The architecture, on the other hand, was not the drab utilitarian box I expected it to be. It was a simple, minimalist design, but the ceilings were tall and it had real windows across the entire front lobby. Skylar met me in the lobby in a shockingly gray suit. I stopped. He'd worn a similar suit when we met and in every call, but I'd thought it was a theme. Your suit is real. What? He looked down and smoothed his tie, which was a deep aubergine with a subtle geometric pattern to the weave. Oh, yeah. Theme off gets a little wearing sometimes. I gawked. Why, why don't you have a theme active? He gestured me toward a door and swiped his hand in front of a panel to unlock it. Pretty much a job requirement. You never know what a default theme is masking, and a lot of the folks we go after use that to hide. He led me down a hall, and we passed other government employees dressed the way you would expect government employees to dress. Simple gray or black suits, ties, sleek business-like hairstyles. Like the hotel, it was a weird, uncanny valley. All of these people were really wearing those outfits— But in theme, they would have been a little crisper, with the whites a little brighter and the blacks a little darker. A haze of cigarette smoke would have hung in the air, even if no one smoked, and somewhere a giant fan would have been spinning lazily. We rounded the corner, and at the end of the hall, filling the entire wall, an actual giant fan was spinning lazily like in a noir film. I stopped. Come on. Really? Skylar glanced at it, and then back at me, with absolutely no expression. What? The giant... what does it even do? It circulates the air. He had to be pulling my leg, but his deadpan was flawless. Skylar walked toward the fan, and I swear to God I thought he was going to walk through it, but he stopped in front of a door midway down the hall. In here. This was an interrogation room. One wall was a large mirror. A single metal table stood in the exact center of the room, with plain metal chairs on either side of it. Directly over the table, a shaft of light bathed the table with harsh white light. Skylar sat down in the chair with his back to the mirror. I settled opposite him, swallowing as the door shut behind me. If it was locked, I could break the mirror and try to get out that way. Skylar sighed. The mirror is just a mirror, so you can't get out that way. We've got smart cameras embedded on all four walls, so there's no reason to have another room. How did you know? That you were evaluating the exits? Really? I swallowed. Why have the mirror? People expect to see certain things. This is a replica of the interrogation set from Dragnet, an early television series which continues to influence police procedurals. He nodded toward the door. When you walk through the outer door, it blocks your connection with the net. People who are used to being always themed respond better if they see what they expect. So, this, the giant fan, the mirror, all set dressing in the real world. Your tie? I like my tie. He fished in the pocket of his coat and pulled out a plastic bag and a pair of bright purple gloves. The evidence bag is real, too. Snapping the gloves on, he pulled out the data recorder and set it on the table in front of me. Do I need gloves? Your DNA is the same as that of your originals. He nodded. And I need you to try to play that. 
My hand stayed in my lap, and I took a slow breath. For once, both my natural instincts and the implanted ones were in agreement. They wanted me to get up and run away. Tension made knots of my spine, and apprehension clogged my throat. I didn't want to play it with him there, but there was no reason that I could offer except that it might incriminate my original, which was sort of the goal of my very existence. Something about playing a message from myself felt too intimate to share, which was stupid, since he could rummage around in my memories. I swallowed. Did you hear the other one? Yeah. I'm sorry. You knew I was guilty. Your original is, yes. We wouldn't have created you if we hadn't been absolutely sure. Skylar pushed the recorder toward me. A biometric indicator on the side glowed red. Let's see what else she has to say. I dragged my hands off my lap and picked up the recorder. The biometric indicator flipped to green. Feeling like I was holding a gun to my own head, I pushed play. Hello, self. I'm not sure which of these you found, but I'm leaving six copies of this message in places that I think you might go. Listen, I'm sorry about the position you've been put in, that I've put you in. When I killed, I didn't think about the fact that they might make you. I should have, obviously, but I didn't, and here we both are. I closed my eyes so I didn't have to watch Skylar watching me. Thank God this wasn't a virtual meeting and I could have the darkness inside my own head. Please, please be careful. You absolutely cannot trust the government. Everything that we knew and thought was a lie, okay? All of it, lies. I want to talk to you. God, I want so badly to talk to you. I know how badly Jonathan's death has got to be hurting. My eyes snapped open and I shut the recorder off. Shaking, I pushed back from the table and stood. She knew how badly it hurt. She had murdered him. I turned and slammed my fist into the wall. The drywall dented, but all I felt was rage and despair. Hey! Skylar's chair scraped against the floor. Can you play the rest of it without me? Yes, but the chances that she left clues that only you'll catch are pretty high. He sighed. I'm sorry. My hand ached as I pulled it away from the wall. I pressed the heels of my hands against my eyelids and made fireworks across the darkness. Grinding my teeth, I sat down again. Is this normal? What? Leaving clues like this. It's just increasing the chances that she's going to be found. The smart thing would be to leave a trap. Better, the smart thing would be to leave no evidence at all. So, what's with the messages? Is that normal? Skylar shifted in his chair, running a hand down his tie. Not normal, no. But I've seen it before, a couple of times. He winced. It's when they feel guilty. The originals. They're second-guessing the crime and want to explain it to the one person who will understand. If you forgive her, she can forgive herself. I stared at him. That's messed up. Yep. It's one of the reasons that PRs can be so useful to us. Skylar drummed his fingers on the table. Look, you know I'm a PR, right? Uh, no, actually... He took a very deep breath and loosened his tie. Okay. 
Okay, I thought you figured it out when you watched that footage. That was... that was my original. I'd been impressed when I'd thought he was just confronting a standard-issue terrorist. Knowing that it had been the moment when he confronted his original was... Well, it reshaped everything that I was trying to do. Holy. Pretty much. He scratched the back of his neck. So, I get it. A lot. What you're going through. Actually, a lot of us here in the department are PRs. You know the deciding factor in making a PR. The government picks good people who had a break. Made the wrong choice. People who feel guilty about it and would undo it if they could. Turns out, after it's all said and done, we tend to make good cops. That's... that's really screwed up. How can they trust you? What was I going to do? Skylar spread his hands. Go back to my old life? Go rogue and start killing people all over again? That's who I was, but it's not who I wanted to be. I don't think it's who my original wanted to be either, but he made choices. I have an opportunity to make different choices. Every day, I make a choice. He chose to tear things down. I try to build things up. Did you read that on a motivational poster? But my wisecrack was just there to cover how close to home that sentiment came. I used to be someone who built things. I built communities and relationships and art. My original wasn't that person anymore. Neither was I but that's who I wanted to be. Would you believe me if I said it was in the pamphlet? No. He grinned, and it was a surprisingly nice grin. You'll have to read it to prove me wrong. I stuck my tongue out at him. For a moment, I felt... normal. Whatever that meant. I looked down and picked at a cuticle. So, whose instincts do I have? What do you mean? I gestured back toward the wall. The violence. Skylar's mouth fell open a little. He closed it, grimacing, and looked away. Uh, yeah. We don't touch your personality when we edit you. I laughed. I know how to... Yes, you know how to kill. You know tactical thinking. But what you do with that information? That's all you. He held up his hand to stop me from speaking. Holly, the whole point of this exercise is that you have the same personality as your original. We don't edit your personality. All the skills do is give us a way to express what's already there. That was nothing I wanted to think about. I pushed play on the recording. Has got to be hurting. I promise that it was necessary. If I can just see you and explain, They'll be watching you, constantly. But if you go to the market, you can leave a message for me there, with Stilla. She's not with us, but I can send a courier to pick up some oranges. Just tell me that you're willing to meet. I'll find you. The recording cut off. I shuddered and let go of it. This isn't it. What? When I was kidnapped, did you catch the part about them needing me to undo a biolock? I nodded to the recorder. This isn't what they needed me to unlock. So the question is, what did your original lock? Skylar picked the recorder up and dropped it back into the plastic bag. Peeling off the gloves, he watched me. Catch anything on the recording? I shook my head. 
besides the fact that I apparently lost my mind? I'll come up with a list of places that are safe for you to meet her, but I'd recommend sending someone to the market rather than going yourself this time. Yeah, that made sense, given my original's current track record of murder and kidnapping. I stared at the data recorder in the plastic sleeve and rubbed my forehead with one hand. She said she wanted to explain, and I didn't believe her. What did it say that I'd hit a point where I trusted Skylar more than I trusted myself? From the moment I'd woken up, he'd been a pain in the ass, but honest. At least as far as I could tell. Whereas my original had teamed up with people who wanted me dead. Whichever way it goes, this has got to be a trap. Very likely. I sighed and tilted my head back to stare at the ceiling. If she locked something and Icon was still cooperating with her, then it seemed likely that they must have control of it, but that she wouldn't unlock it. All right, let's talk about getting me into Icon. The streetlight shadows stretched across the streets outside of the commons. The slum that the checkouts lived in was a complex of identical apartment towers arranged like sentries around a central common area, which was, I supposed, where it got its name. Pedestrian paths cut between the buildings, lined with planters. The planters on either side were filled with tomatoes and leafy green vegetables in tidy rows, which were a sharp contrast to the weeds growing through cracks in the sidewalk. Some builder had tacked porches onto the front of the towers as an unhappy afterthought. I bet they thought it would look cozy. Maybe it did when it was new, but peeling paint and mildewed plastic can make anything look like a horror film waiting to happen. As I walked down one of the public streets toward the commons, I carried a duffel bag filled with toys, a tent, and some clothes in one hand and a bag of groceries in the other. If someone wanted to search me before I got into position, they would find nothing seriously incriminating there. My heart rate accelerated as I stepped off of public property, easing down the path between two of the buildings at the commons. As long as I had been on public property, Skylar had been able to watch my back. He had a fire team ready to extract me if things went really wrong, but we both knew that if Icon caught me again, I probably wouldn't survive long enough to be rescued. The duffel bag was bulky enough that I was tempted to abandon it, but it was best to be prepared for contingencies. If Skylar's sources were correct, Icon's local base was on the top floor of the third building to my right. The maintenance bot I'd sent ahead of me crawled up a wall and started to clean the security camera there. Oh, the government couldn't access these, but the managers of the property could, and I'd bet my remaining day that Icon was watching that feed. Waiting for the lens to be obscured, I paused behind a crop of some kind of bean. Interesting that I knew how to kill now, but couldn't identify a literal hill of beans. Hey. A man's voice came from behind me, gruff and tense. What you doing there? Crap. And this was why I was wearing a disguise. I sent up a prayer that my wig and printed fake nose would fool whoever this was. I stayed in the crouch and looked back, smiling as if I were just tying my shoes. Hey, um, hi? Three people, one of whom was Goldie, the man with the gold earring from the nightclub, stood behind me. Double crap. 
the chances of being recognized just doubled. I had been counting on the members of the fire team to be out waiting for me to stumble across a point of interest instead of being back here. On the other hand, Goldie had only been at the nightclub, so maybe the others were out waiting at some likely location for me to appear. My shoe? Pitching my voice up and forward through my nose, I straightened, holding the duffel. Do you know where the office is? Why? He glanced at the other two, and they each took steps to the side, as if ready to cut off my escape. Skylar had said that they hadn't altered my personality, that it just expressed itself with the new tools that it had. I wasn't a cold-blooded murderer, no matter what my original had done. I was sure about that. I was a problem solver. Before this, I had solved problems by hosting parties or boosting signals. Now I solved them with a different skill set. And these people were a problem waiting to be solved. I smiled. I, um, hi. The nice thing about being nervous was that it made trying to project nervous dead simple. I, um, I heard that there were rooms here for, um, checkouts. You checked out? Goldie took a step toward me. Yes. I mean, I stopped going to the renewal station, and my nanite stopped working, but now, now I don't know what to do. I mean, I feel cleaner and all, but my apartment is all, ugh, and everything is fake, and are there rooms here? They exchanged looks, and I worried that I overplayed it. I was basing the character on a carrot carver I knew, who was 27 going on 17. It would help if I knew what they were looking for. Were they the normal security team? Did they just hang around all day watching for suspicious characters? Or were they the greeting crew for checkouts coming in for the first time? What's in the bag? Oh. Or were they on the lookout specifically for me? I looked down at the duffel. Clothes? Let's see. One of the women with Goldie held out a hand and I passed the duffel to her. She deliberately brushed her fingers against mine. Nothing changed in the environment for me. She nodded. Theming's off. Frisker. I'll give them this. They were businesslike and didn't shove me around, just checked me for weapons, of which I had none. On me. They opened the duffel, which was filled with the things you would expect someone checking out to have. A tent, toiletries, and generic white clothes like someone who was nearly themeless might own. And then they took the bag of groceries, going through each item while I shifted from one foot to the next and tried to look the right amount of nervous. All right. Goldie zipped the duffel bag up and handed it back to me. He kept the bag of groceries. Um, I shifted weight to my left leg and fiddled with a strand of my wig. My groceries? Tithes and offerings, my dear. He fished an apple out of the bag and tossed it to an Asian woman with gray hair and lines at the corners of her eyes. Let's take our new friend down to the office. She nodded to him and shooed me toward a gate between the buildings. He's teasing you. Oh, So I'll get my groceries back? Les laughed at me. Oh no, but you won't go hungry either. I wasn't going hungry. Outside? I mean, I'm checked out, but I still have my universal living income, right? 
It's just another way they keep track of you. The walk between buildings opened out, as the map had led me to expect, onto a large, round common area. There was a fountain in the middle of it, and the paving stones had all been dug up to be a giant community garden. The garden was pretty impressive, but I didn't see how it could feed all of the people living here. Supplement? Sure, but there wasn't nearly enough produce for these folks. She led me into the first building on the left, which at least meant I wouldn't have to backtrack far. Or maybe I would get really lucky, and they'd just give me a room in the Icon building. Huh. Les opened the door to the office and held it for me, which sounds like a polite thing, but it really means that she was controlling the exit. I pretended not to notice and went in. Zoba sat at a chair next to the small desk. They glanced at me, without recognition, and over to Les. Who's this? New checkout, wants a room. She smiled and patted me on the back. Macaulay checked your bags, nothing untoward. All right. They nodded toward a row of hard, white plastic chairs. Have a seat. Hope you don't mind doing some paperwork on actual paper. Um, no? I settled on the seat, putting the duffel in the chair next to me where I could get to it quickly if necessary. Zoba nodded and opened the desk drawer and produced a clipboard and an energy gun. Before they had the gun all the way out of the drawer, I was moving. I flung the duffel at Zoba, lunging at Les, and yelled, Tent, assemble! The tent ripped through the duffel bag, expanding in a flurry of poles and nanite-infused cloth. I grabbed Les and swung her away from the door. She yelped before I even touched her, throwing her hands up between us, which gave me time to spin and drive a leg into the woman's knee. With my other hand, I pulled out a can of party string from my pocket and sprayed her in the face. She dropped, blinded, to the ground. Zoba fired at the tent, which would have worked well for them if I hadn't printed a tent rated for lightning strikes. I grabbed a chair and spun around the side of the tent, slamming it into Zoba with both hands. They staggered backward, firing wildly. I dove forward, slamming into them. We grappled for a moment, all hands and feet and grunting, but I could solve this problem. I swung, bringing the empty can of silly string down on their nasal bridge. As they reeled back, I followed up with a knife chop to the front of the neck, but the tent snagged one of my feet and threw my aim off just the tiniest bit. I clipped their chin as I went in, and my little finger snapped. It didn't matter, because they dropped to their knees, dropping their energy weapon. I spun and slammed the can of party string into Zoba's temple. Once, twice. On the third time, they dropped to the ground and didn't move. I snatched the energy weapon from the floor. My stuff was scattered across the office, but the tent trick had been worth it. Tent, disassemble. While it obediently folded itself up into a tidy package, I grabbed the fake tent ropes that I'd included in my bundle and quickly bound and gagged Zoba and Les. It would have been too much to hope for a supply closet, so I just tucked them as much behind the desk as I could. I could, and maybe should, retreat. My chances of doing this quietly were significantly reduced now, but if I didn't continue forward, they would move their base, and I only had one day left to live. There wasn't time to grab everything, but my toys were right there. Funny thing, I couldn't print anything labeled as a weapon, but there were so many ways around that. 
It was just another problem to solve. A real crossbow? Weapon. A kid's toy? No problem. Change the material from plastic to polycarbonate steel? Totally fine. Print a vehicle suspension spring? Sure. And with those, it was dead simple to convert the toy into something real. I snatched it off the floor. On Zoba's hip, a radio crackled. Zoba, what's going on out there? The cameras are all hazy. An actual radio. I guess if you want to avoid government-controlled nanites, old school is the tech you reach for. I didn't wait and just walked out the door, loading the crossbow as I went. Behind me, on the radio... Zoba? Macaulay? Without an answer, they would send reinforcements, and I needed to be gone before they got here. I held the crossbow down at my side, trusting the shadows to let it vanish from unmodified human sight, and headed back to the central courtyard. Goldie, a.k.a. Macaulay, stood at the front door of the building that Jill Preston, head of Icon, was supposed to be operating out of. That answered the question of what he was doing here, clearly doing heightened sentry duty for Preston. That was fine. I had never planned on taking the front door. Walking up ten flights of constricted stairwells without an easy escape route to face a person who had to know I was coming? No thank you. I went to the side of the building, aimed the crossbow, and fired it upward. I'd modified the grappling hook quarrel from a couple of different non-weapon pieces of climbing gear. It arced up, trailing a climbing line, and followed Earth's gravity in a beautiful curve back down onto the rooftop. I smiled as it caught on the balustrade of the roof. They hadn't edited crossbow into me. I'd printed the thing and spent part of my afternoon learning how to make that shot up the side of my hotel. I earned this. Slinging the crossbow over my back, I started up the rope. Before, the old me, my original, would never have been able to climb this building. She would have gotten maybe a meter off the ground before her arms gave out. But I went up it like it was level ground. Sure, my muscles burned with exertion and my breath quickened, but my body had been built for this. Below me, members of Icon spilled into the courtyard, along with some people who were clearly just residents. Shouts of, what's going on, competed with, everybody back inside. I just kept climbing. Zoba's down! I called up the number that Skylar had given me. It connected immediately, projecting him against the brick wall of the building. Are you all right? His tie was askew. Fine. All right, three floors up, and I was feeling the climb. Now would be a really great time for the maintenance bots to change light bulbs, as discussed. He gave a nod, tapping out something in a screen I couldn't see. Happening now. Below me, they still hadn't figured out to look up. The shadows hid me, but if they got work lights, I'd show up. I caught portions of shouts. What are bots and all coming from? Thanks. I'll call again when I'm ready for extraction. I tried to disconnect, but Skylar hung out in my vision. Naturally. I grunted as I climbed. Taking up valuable landscape in my field of vision, can you... Oh, sorry. Right. He vanished into the night. The shadows coating the side of the buildings deepened as the lights in the courtyard blinked out one by one. Lights in the buildings flickered and went out, and the night popped into infrared glory. 
I got to the fifth floor and looked through the dark window. A single, person-sized shape glowed in the cool shadows. It was tempting to come in right through the window like some sort of avenging angel, which wasn't actually a bad description of a PR. Maybe an avenging revenant? I shook my head, which was filled with weird thoughts, and went all the way up to the roof. Breaking glass would tell everyone below where I was. I left the rope and grappling hook in place, in case I needed this as an exit route, and slipped into the stairwell. A maintenance bot trundled down the stairs below me, removing a light bulb from the wall. All it had taken was filing a citizen's maintenance report, which any of the checkouts could have done to keep the commons in good repair. But the fear of government surveillance ran strong here. Below it, in the sinking darkness, I could hear voices and see flashlights as Icon members tried to clear the stairs. If they had any brains at all, they would realize who my target was. I eased the door open on the top floor. Down the hall, two guards stood outside the door Skylar had identified as Jill Preston's room, their body heat glowing against the cool shadows. I had laid them both out and had control of their weapons before either of them could draw a second breath. The power in my limbs was intoxicating, which terrified me. No matter what Skylar said about my personality being untouched, I was fundamentally a different person. Was I pleased because I had just hurt people, or because I had solved a problem efficiently? I stepped into the room, gun held low and ready. Windows on all four walls, which meant that some of them were just screens. No other doors. One person. An old, white woman with a crown of braided silver hair. Jane Doe. Shit. The picture that Skylar had showed me was of a blonde woman. Both of them were white, but Jane Doe was a good 20 years older than Preston. She sat at a desk with a cigarette in one hand and a lighter in the other. I raised my gun and aimed it at her. Stepping fully into the room, I kicked the door shut with my foot. She turned toward the sound and spotted me in the dim light from the window. She sighed, rolling her eyes. Questions warred for precedence. How did she know Jonathan? Where was Jill Preston? Where was my original? Leveling my gun at her, I crossed the room. The first question out of my mouth was, how do you know Jonathan Gentry? That's the question you're going to open with? She flicked the lighter and lit the end of the cigarette. At least you're consistent. Start there. I had other goals, but all of them were overridden by just wanting to understand. All right. Jonathan wanted to understand checkouts, and we'd met many years ago, back when I was still an upstanding citizen. She shrugged. It's not very complicated. So you worked at the lab with him? You killed Andy Blackwell. She took a drag on the cigarette. Did your handler tell you that? She was trying to get under my skin, so I ignored the dig. Tried to ignore it. I'm going to ask one last time. How did you meet my husband? In my past life, I met a lot of people. And I guess I made an impression on him. She exhaled smoke. He may have tried to hide it, but Jonathan was an idealist. And as you can imagine, we tend to recruit idealists. For the cause, you know. 
We thought we could convince Jonathan to share the memory tech with us so we could make renewal stations, free from governmental influence. Then why did you have him kill? Please, for the love of saints, don't ask if that was why I had him killed. You know better than that. Your original already told you as much. A part of my brain raised a warning flag that she was talking to buy time for one of her team to get up here. I crossed the room and put my gun directly against her head. Open windows on two walls, one looking out over the commons, the other toward the city. Gorski could hit me through either. Stand up. No. I slipped behind her, grabbing an arm and twisting it up behind her back. She had to get to her feet to keep me from dislocating her arm. I walked her to the corner so we were shielded from at least one window and shoved her onto the floor next to a hat rack. A pork pie hat sat at the top. As she turned on her knees to face me, the faint glow of distant city lights from the other window brushed her cheekbones and gave me a glimpse into what she had looked like 15 years ago. A former senator, disaffected, checks out, and vanishes from the public eye. Chill Preston. She smiled, wrinkles bunching, and held up her cigarette, which she had somehow not dropped. Not fooled by my clever disguise of getting old? Was Jonathan cooperating? Preston sighed and took another drag on the cigarette. You know you aren't the first PR that the government has manipulated into trying to assassinate me. I'm not here to assassinate you. I should have already called Skylar, but I didn't think anyone would let me ask her questions later. Just tell me if he was working with you. Then what? Preston blew smoke into the room. You'll let me go? Anything I say can be pulled out of your brain and used in a court of law. No. You've already implicated yourself. I'm a checkout. How much more implicated can I be? She winked, and I nearly shot her just for that. Kids these days are so adorable. She was so close to being a dead woman, and I held on to my temper with a narrow thread. I had come here for a reason, and as much as I wanted to know about Jonathan, he wasn't why I was here. Do you know where my original is? No, I don't. She's not a good fit for our organization. I laughed. What the hell does that mean? Not enough of a terrorist for you? Who told you we were terrorists? I've seen the videos. She shook her head. And you believed that was us? The government slapped some labels on footage of people doing horrible things in order to pin it on us and you bought it? There's also the fact that you sent people to kill me. Someone tried to kill you? How terrible. Her voice sounded like a grandmother out of a fairy tale. Poor dear. Such a loose cannon, like your original. Do you know how to find her? I twisted her wrist higher behind her back. Before you answer that, let me ask you another. Do you need me to unlock something for you? In my grip, she stilled for a moment. If I did, I'm presuming that you wouldn't unlock it out of the goodness of your heart. I shrugged. You won't tell me where my original is out of the goodness of your heart either, so that seems like a reasonable trade. So trade a real person's life for that of a simulacrum? Preston looked at her free wrist, which had an actual wristwatch on it. 
I have a meeting to get to, so let's wrap this up, shall we? You're not a real person. The government doesn't treat you like one. You're also not going to kill me because doing so would mean that you are no different from your original whom you loathe because she killed your husband. That self-loathing is driving you right now because if you can find her, then you can undo a mistake. Except, you can't. He's dead. An idea swam into my brain, and I lowered the weapon, taking two steps back to give her room, just in case she would bend. Is he actually dead? She watched my face and then stubbed her cigarette out on the floor. To the best of my knowledge, yes, but your original may have other answers. She never checked in again after she did it, did she? So you don't know why she killed him. And you do. Her face didn't change. I need to go to my meeting now, so unless you're going to kill me or charge me with something... The first option was so, so tempting. Skylar would thank me for it. It would rid the world of a horrid person. I smiled at her and pulled out a knife. There's a third option. Have you seen my carvings? The color leached out of her face, and for the first time, she looked frightened. That told me a lot about the state of my original's mind. I took a step toward her again. You said I was consistent, right? You wouldn't. Why not? I have one day to live and can't find my original. Why wouldn't I? What exactly do I have to lose? I held up the paring knife. My heart was tearing apart in my chest because a part of me was enjoying this. I loved frightening her. Or do you, in fact, know how to find her? There's... There's a data recorder. Preston wet her lips. In the desk. She left it for you. I've listened to her data recorders. She's not going to tell me where she is. I placed my knife against her cheek. And she won't unlock anything for you. Why? Because she's second-guessing every choice she's made since the party. Self-loathing is driving both of us, but she's also driven by guilt and despair. Tomorrow is my last day. I can murder you slowly, and I won't have to live with my guilt. This is coercion. I don't care. Her breathing was audible and strained in a way it hadn't been earlier. Her pulse beat in a raised vein at her temple. Jonathan designated your original as his next of kin. She inherited his past phrases, all of them. And... You want to have the password to his Ravelry account or his music library? She tried to pull away from the knife. I want you to remember how unethical it is what they've done by creating you. Do you want them to stay in power, really? Okay, now you're just stalling. We're done. There's a back door. Jonathan discovered a back door when he upgraded the neuroengineering modules for the renewal stations. He realized the government could hack into anyone's memory and edit them without the person ever knowing. He was horrified and didn't know what to do about it. So he encrypted the passphrases so only he could access the backdoor technology. And you wanted that tech, so you tried to steal it from him. Preston scoffed. He came to me. He remembered my speeches at all those conferences, remembered my constant warnings that hacking into our supposedly private memories was inevitable. I wasn't trying to steal anything, I was trying to recruit him. But before I could, well, you know what happened. I shuddered. 
unlock his passphrases, and we can make your family forget that you're a PR. We can read the memories of anyone in the government. We can find leverage to force them to end this appalling, inhumane practice of creating PRs. Chills ran through me so violently that it felt like my skin was cramping. If you think about it, checkouts and PRs aren't all that different. We're just two sides of the same coin, forced to suffer our fates alone. I swallowed and tightened my grip on Preston. Then I activated my internal screen and called Skylar. I have Jill Preston. She just admitted to plotting to overthrow the government. I used myself as bait. I sat in the gallery where I'd thrown the party for the potter back when I thought everything was real. Blank canvases filled the walls. I waited. In my hand, I held an orange, and I slid my knife through the resin-laden skin, releasing packets of citrus oil into the air. And I listened, not for the first time, to the recording that my original had left with Jill. Hello, self. I keep thinking about Jonathan. I keep thinking about how he was the realest person that I knew. Do you remember? Of course you do. They loaded you with my memories. So think about Jonathan the way he was when we met him. Remember? We were at the Riverside Marketplace. We were buying oranges for that carving sequence mimicking sea anemones. There was this guy with dark hair that he had to keep blowing out of his eyes, and he was buying oranges too, for breakfast. We said something about preferring the small flaws of real oranges to the idealized printed ones, and he said that we could adjust the printer for that. And it turned out that he was a neuroengineer. As she spoke, the orange in my hand took on small scores that exposed the white pith underneath the vivid peel. I remember Jonathan tossing an orange into the air and laughing at something I said. I couldn't remember what I'd said, just the glow from making this beautiful man laugh. I think about the joy of that first meeting and how he laughed. I don't think he was lying about that. Or at least not consciously. Or at least not then. How many times did we travel with him? How many places did we go together? Did you know that he was unhappy? This is what I keep turning over in my head. If I loved him, why didn't I know how unhappy he was? Why didn't I know that he hated himself? That he hated what his life's work had become? God, please meet me. I just... I just want to know if I made the right choice. If you think back, can you see how unhappy he was? The recording ended. My jaw hurt from clenching. How dare she? How dare she tell me so little? If you think back, can you see how unhappy he was? Next to my ear, something metallic clicked. My original stood beside me with a gun to my head. It had taken her long enough to get here. I was done playing her games. It was her turn to play mine. I pulled a wedge of orange through a gap in the peel and bit into the tart fruit. The inside of my mouth constricted away from the acid. Do you hate them now too? Or is that a thing that we get used to after a while? 
You don't seem to care that a gun is to your head. I shrugged. I've had a gun to my head all four days of my life. Through the tiny gap in the skin, I extracted another wedge. The membrane was cool and like fine skin beneath my touch. People walked through the gallery but didn't react to us. I hadn't brushed into anyone here, so I wasn't sure what their theming showed. Was it trying to make them think they had the gallery to themselves, or were they just denying the existence of violence in our world? Either way, we were functionally invisible to everyone else. I keep staring at that blank canvas. There used to be a painting by Korsakoff there, but it wasn't real. Or was it? What makes art real? Is it that it existed, or that someone appreciated it? Can real emotions be generated by something fake? My original didn't reply. I didn't really need her to, because I already knew the answer. Setting down the orange, I stood up slowly. She wouldn't kill me because I had the one thing she wanted that no one else could give her. I could forgive her. Could, but I wouldn't. With a leisurely motion that felt like stretching, I pulled out my gun, pointing it at my original. It had occurred to me that I didn't actually know what level this was set to fire at when it struck her. With all of the Icon members, it had been set to stun, but I suspected that it would kill my original. I couldn't find it in myself to care. She was pointing an antique revolver at me. There was no doubt what this weapon would do, what it was designed to do. And she was crying. Again, I couldn't find it in myself to care. I can't tell you if that was a flaw or a strength. And yet, with my end goal in sight, I couldn't bring myself to pull the trigger. Looking at her was not like looking in the mirror. There was a subtle wrongness, which intellectually I understood. It was because I was used to seeing myself in the mirror, so I'm used to seeing a view of myself that is reversed. But she and I existed in the same physical universe. I was her, and she was me. Even with those critical weeks of difference, we were still the same person. Or at least had the same backstory. What was it Skylar had said about a single breaking point? A single spot where we made the wrong choice? Just like she had to try to convince me that she was right, I had to know that she was wrong. With the gun still outstretched, I said, You killed a replica of Jonathan, didn't you? My original nodded, tears streaking down familiar cheeks. Is his original still? I knew the answer to that, but when she shook her head, I still felt the air pull out of my lungs. Why was he a replica? Jonathan had this... this depression that he masked. He felt at a loss, purposeless, even with a real job. The cold, sad smile she returned froze my heart because I knew that expression. She wasn't lying. You remember, don't you? I did. I remembered the way he would turn inward and become silent. He always said that he was thinking about a project, but it was his own sort of theming. Jonathan checked out after he discovered the back door, didn't he? I knew the answer, but I wanted to hear her say it. Her face went cold and bitter again. She still had her antique revolver pointed at me, 
but the end was beginning to shake. It was a long time for unedited human muscles to hold a piece of steel. He tried. When I look back, I can see how hard he tried to be there with us, but he finally couldn't. He, do you remember his trip to the Rhone Valley? Jonathan never came home from that. He had been gone for two weeks, my heart constricted in my chest. I usually went with him, but this trip was supposed to be all business, and he'd told me to stay home. He'd told me that he wouldn't have time to talk. Yes. Yes, he did. Jonathan never came home. My gun arm dropped, the weight of her words dragging it down. Jonathan knew too much. His work was too important. The government couldn't let him go. So after he... She swallowed and looked away. After he checked out, they sent that thing to kill him and replace him. But I finally realized the night of the party. I confronted it, and it confessed. It confessed to killing our husband. It had been lying to us for weeks. Liar scrawled on the floor in blood. So you murdered him. I murdered it. And I made sure that its death was loud and final and for real, so that they couldn't just sweep it under the rug. The government had to go on with the lie that I'd killed the real Jonathan. And that's what they did. At the trial, did they convict me for killing a PR? Of course not, because to do so would be to admit they unlawfully created one to begin with. No one turned to look at us. They continued staring at art that did not exist, as if we too did not exist. If he was so innocent, then why did he contact Preston? My original glared at me, but had no response. Jonathan must have known the risks of checking out. You said it yourself. He was integral to the system. He would have known they would send a PR after him, and yet he still decided to check out, to leave you. My original shook her head. I see they've made you just like they made that murderer. Foolish enough to think that sharing a set of memories means you can understand an actual person. I bet you would have believed that thing's lies about loving me too much to ever consider checking out, about being able to give me the future that Jonathan had abandoned. Liar scrawled on the floor in blood. Maybe he wasn't lying. Maybe his love for you was the only way he could summon the strength to kill his original. When they create a replica, they fundamentally change you. The love that thing supposedly felt for me. The love you think you feel for Jonathan. How can you know that that's not just what they've designed you to feel? My original lowered her gun. You're broken, Holly. They rewrote you in ways you'll never be able to trust. You can't live like that. He may have been a copy, but he was still Jonathan. And you killed him. You carved him like an orange. You can't live with that. Around us, the patrons of the art gallery moved in murmuring false solitude. We stared at each other, neither of us quite the mirror image of the other, but some other weird reflection. One of us was going to have to lift her gun and shoot the other. It was what I had been designed to do. It was the only way she could live. But would either of us really be alive afterward? Hello, self. I left your body on the gallery floor. No one heard the gun. 
The violence was edited away. I'm sure someone will come and clean up the mess. I considered making another choice, you know. But in the end, I wanted to live. Even this strange half-life I have found myself in. I am broken. We were both broken. And at the same time, I can't help but feel that I am a more honest version of myself than we were before, when I still believed all of the lies. I'm not sure what happens next, but my life can never look the same as before. No more iris-clad renewals. No more lies. Just me and death. Morbid, eh? Me and death. In many ways, that was my entire relationship with you. So how do I define my life now? Let's roll the dice and find out where I go from here. The Original by Brandon Sanderson and Mary Robinette Cole. Narrated by Julia Whalen. A mainframe production. Music by Eric Jorgensen. Sound design by Daniel Eaton and Paul Fonarev. Music engineering by Emmanuel Ramos. Produced by Max Epstein and David Pace. Special thanks to Emily Sanderson, Peter Alstrom, Christina Kugler, Dragonsteel Entertainment, Joshua Bilmez, Brady McReynolds, Susan Velasquez, Jabberwocky Literary Agency, Jonathan Lyons, Jessica Sulky, Eric Raymond, Andrew Twiss, Alessandra Meacham, and Julian Mann. The End We hope you've enjoyed this production of The Original by Brandon Sanderson and Mary Robinette Cole, narrated by Julia Whalen. Recorded books are available wherever audiobooks are sold. Thank you for being a Recorded Books reader. Audible hopes you have enjoyed this program.